Chris. Welcome to Speak and Destroy, episode 102. Speak and Destroy is a podcast featuring interviews about Metallica, the first podcast featuring interviews about Metallica, and I'm your host, Ryan J. Downey. My guests this episode are returning champions, Andrew Carter and Eric German. Andrew Carter is the former deputy editor of Terrorizer magazine and a longtime entertainment attorney working in the film business. He's also managed some bands and is just an excellent all-around dude. Eric German is also an attorney who was part of the lawsuits against Napster way back in the day and represents several rock and metal bands these days, including Five Finger Death Punch, AWOL Nation, Bad Wolves, Ice Nine Kills, and many more. And of course, both of these guys are huge Metallica fans. Andrew had the idea for us to get on and talk about the infamous, legendary co-headlining tour featuring Guns N' Roses and Metallica. Back in the early 90s, Black Album era, Use Your Illusion era, Faith No More is the opener, along with uh, different other bands, depending on when and where you saw the tour. And given that this is the 30th anniversary of Metallica's Black Album and the 40th anniversary of Metallica in general, year in the year of our Lord 2021, and that Guns N' Roses has now, uh, for the last several years, uh, been firing on all cylinders with the return of both Duff McKagan and Slash to the lineup. It seemed like a great time to, yeah, take a deep dive into that tour, our respective memories and experiences with it, and various conversational threads that opens up about, of course, Metallica, as well as Guns N' Roses. Remember, you can follow Speaking Destroy on YouTube, as well as Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. You can follow me on Twitter at Ryan Downey and on Instagram at Superhero HQ. Speaking Destroy is part of the Pop Curse Podcast Network, so check out some of the other Pop Curse podcasts. Here it is. My conversation with Eric German and Andrew Carter. This is Speak and Destroy. like people that love metallica the 30s and 40s and oh we dude it is today but they like maybe i'll save it but the uh i think it's funny that they grew up on load and reload and that and they're huge fans like, yeah oh we're already recording we'll figure out something to do about people like all this. I, I, I think no, it's no, funny don't be, to, don't be excited to hear inside baseball and elo it's I, I i think it's funny the kids that uh grew up at, in the 30s and 40s i, I mean i i think it's funny the people that grew up as load and reload, I don't know if I would have been the same level of fan if that's what I was, you know, exposed to. I remember when Avenged Sevenfold was first blowing up. This was just kind of like a because Avenged are like elder statesmen to kids now. And I, I remember seeing a picture of Matt wearing a like sleeveless, kind of vintagey looking Metallica shirt, and it was the load era Metallica logo. 
And I remember back then being like, this is fucking weird. <laughs> and now as we're having this conversation right now, I mean, load was 96. I mean, that yeah. was, yes. So yeah, if you were born <laughs> when load came out, like you're in your fucking twenties now. That's pretty mind blowing. And I was, I've, I've, I've had I people was, on the podcast that, uh, you know, big, huge Metallica fans, obviously, who discovered them on Saint Anger. I have, what I have, does that say? What does that say about a person that picked the biggest band in the land that was already on top? That was probably, arguably, a touch bloated at the time, a little bit overwrought, a little confused. They were, they were Rome right before the fall of the empire at that point, right? And then, uh, uh, you know, wonderful music. I love it in hindsight. You know, the Outlaw Tour is one of my favorite songs, you know, like, but, but I fell in love. And this passion for Metallica for me comes from being 15 years old and, and uh, uh, riding my bike to the record store and unwrapping the vinyl Master of Puppets and going home and, 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 Try try that needle drop for the first time, Ryan. Yeah. And uh, um, my the, my love of Metallica comes from sitting in the woods with my friends with a cassette Sony Walkman, hearing like a fifteen times taped over cassette of uh, Ride the Lightning, and being like frightened, like what is this? And hearing like just this massive like evil orchestration. I thought of uh, uh, for whom the bell tolls and that put the hair up on the back of my neck like load or reload never could is some of it going because i i i to your point i often think about how you know when i i guess it would let's say 85 86 when i'm a very little kid and i'm first discovering punk music you know at that point the sex pistols are you know air quotes long gone uh, the Misfits have been gone for two or three years. Minor Threat's been gone. Uh, and yet, you know, I'm discovering those bands at that time and going back into those catalogs. It, what seems like a million years ago, like, right? When I'm, you know, so I was born in 73. So in like 85, 86, me hearing the Sex Pistols, 77 might as well have been 100 years ago. And yet I'm like, all about it i'm into it so i wonder if some folks who discover metallica in you know these later periods if it's kind of the same as like you know i mean I, I i went to high school with with kids who were like super fans of like the doors and pink floyd and janice joplin and all that stuff and obviously i mean floyd is a different animal but you know the doors and joplin and hendrix and stuff had been gone uh you know before a lot of us were born uh, and yet you know there were people where that was like their thing so i wonder if metallica because of their current just existence and ubiquitousness if that's like you know what i mean so it's like even though saint anger's the current record are those people getting in still getting into master of puppets just like we did it just so happens i think i think they were but i think that at that time they were the biggest band in the land and it was you know real it wasn't exactly an underground fu uh yeah. rebellious move to be a metallica fan in 1996 you know what i yeah. mean whereas when i was into it and look everybody thinks that that right obviously master of puppets blew up ride the lightning was successful kill em all was even successful but you know it felt a little bit more like us against the world that for sure know, 
I was Metallica fan three albums before they uh, they made a video right, on MTV, right? right? So I think a, a couple yeah. things here was that that um, throughout that entire era, Metallica never stopped being a great live band, and so even if you were just buying the current record, you were definitely going to go down and see them. And so during Load and Reload, I mean, I saw both of those tours, and they were playing songs from those records, but a, you know that would be a third of the set at most on the Reload tour. So you were still getting the old classics and things like that. And by that time, they had graduated to, you know, a headline show that generally ran about two hours and fifteen minutes with the encores. And even and then by the time Saint Anger came around, um, they certainly for the first couple legs of that tour. It affected the set list, the negative reaction to the record, because there was at the most three, like they would do maybe three songs from St. Anger live and then the rest of it. And then that was also the tour when they started busting out things like Metal Militia and Commando yeah. in the encore. So it actually, um, to a certain extent, you actually got a raw older. This was the Metallica that actually started that opened the, opened up the uh, the can of, of early whoop ass songs that they hadn't played in years mm -hmm. because they needed to do something to sort of, I think, counter the reaction to the record. Sure. So those '90s, those '90s records were um, those tours, though. And let's be real, right? Uh, they James was singing a lot more, yeah, yeahs, and like a little bit more sing-songy, a little less bite to the vocals. Maybe the growl wasn't always there. It kind of uh, got a little mature, right? Yeah. Uh, these days, they go back and sing those same songs. A B. A song like if we go see Metallica today, listen to like him sing Battery or Fight Fire with Fire or something like that, and then listen to the way that they were. There were times that it kind of softened and the rough edges were a little curved there. Uh, and it got a little bit more bite back around the era of St. Anger. I think St. Anger was supposed to be more of a punk record. I think they were so. Yeah. I remember at the time reading uh, an interview or, or a review or somebody where I think it was Kirk or somebody was talking about Mashuga like comparisons, like they were into underground metal and realizing, oh shit, we're old. We need to come out hard. We need to come out street. We need to come out like, you know, grungy basement. And I think that was the idea behind the, uh, the drum tone and the no guitar solos. I think, I think was Lars's no guitar solos was like, uh, hey, you know, System of a Down, Rage Against the Machine. You know, even though those bands have solos I, I think he was he was definitely thinking about those records in that moment for sure that were like you know oh solos aren't the new metal bands weren't known for solos and that was definitely big at that time i've always viewed saint anger as essentially the primal scream record because yeah. um like it's primal scream therapy because james is in his first year of sobriety and as somebody who went through that right around the same time i get where he was coming from in a way that um and, and I think Lars, from his part, was just angry at the entire situation. Mm -hmm. And I think that was reflected in, okay, let's take this really, really weird, unorthodox approach. They'd also lost Jason under, and, you know, I guess, you know, the, the, the fences have been mended now, but I don't think that, you know, um, this was a guy that I think, you know, they sort of, they sort of mistreated him for 15 years and never really made him a full member of the club. And then he finally walked out. And I think to a certain extent, I think they were angry at themselves for having lost him. Absolutely. Um, with, 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 with a few exceptions, I would rather hear today, if we were headed to a Metallica concert right now, I'd rather hear Frantic or St. Anger or a couple of others uh, from that uh, record than I would uh, most of Load or Reload, with a few exceptions. Ooh. I'd rather hear St. Anger and Frantic than King Nothing and Fuel. How's that? 
Um, well, I mean, fuel, I mean, fuels, fuels a staple, you know, um, I think that most of reload, I think we're like the discards from load and it has its moments, but having said that, and I know I'm about to get a big nod from Ryan, I'm never going to be upset when they play the outlaw torn live. Ah, uh, yeah, it's the best. It's the best. Um, it's Metallica song for me. Yeah. I'm, I'm never going to be upset when they play bleeding me. Um, I think, um, I, I love ain't my bitch. I love two by four. Um, I think that load I think, is out of those two i think if they were to cut four songs off of load or if they cut it down to eight so it was your standard eight song metallica record like the ones or nine songs like the ones that had come in the 80s i think you would have an i mean it's a stadium rock record and i think that if you if you were to pick the best eight songs out of that you've got an, just an absolute classic you nailed it you nailed it it's a stadium rock record right i like yeah. believe it or not crazy controversial but think about it i like prog rock Metallica, right? There's a war going on. There's prog rock Metallica versus stadium rock Metallica. Well, uh, Injustice for All brought it to ridiculous proportions. That's, that's the peak of the prog Metallica. Yeah. Right. I like Death Magnetic better than Load, Reload, or St. Anger because that's prog rock Metallica. It is. Think about it. Long ass songs, lots of different parts. Uh, you know, maybe people complain about the production. But broken, beaten, and scarred, and songs like that are uh, yeah. All, all nightmare long is like a that's an A plus song. Yeah, cyanide. Um, um, what's the uh, what's the instrumental on that one? Uh, uh, suicide and redemption. Suicide, yeah, suicide and redemption. Yeah. So, yeah, I think that's one where, and I think Eric, you hit the nail on the head. If they would, um, that one needs a remix. And if they did, I'd be playing it a lot more. Yeah. The only uh, thing that I, the only thing that I, the, I'm with I'm with you on fuel. Except interestingly. Fuel's not a song that I ever listen to, but it's a song that I appreciate live, and I've come to realize it's for the uh, the dynamics that it adds to the set. Bingo. It's only four minutes, and they can use lots of pyro. <laughs> yeah, there's a lot of pyro, and it's very, uh, yeah, it, it almost like it's giving them and the audience a break from the, like, athleticism of the, of the proggy, like, breakneck intensity well, you know. well so on the on the guns and roses tour like the stadium tour that we were uh going to talk about yes it was the beginning of a dismantling of the metallica that i loved right this was um if you take injustice for all and say that's the peak of the ridiculousness the progginess the long songs the weird time signatures all of that and then we now distill that 12 pack of beer down to a shot of whiskey which is uh the black album right which is purposely the anti-injustice for all right not, uh, sandman's like one riff and that's the track that opens <laughs> <album>. right <laughs> and they and they and they were i was disappointed i mean i love the black album in hindsight but as that proggy kid that just loved Injustice for all and master of puppets right i wanted more of that right and i showed up and it was two like thing, two, two things I want to say just before they escape me, and then you know, we'll, yeah, we'll, we'll, and I want to let Andrew lead us into uh, the Guns N' Roses Metallica tour. Uh, one is that, and you know, circling back to our conversation about when people get into bands and so on, uh, you know, I have a group chat with uh, old friends of mine from Indiana who are all like our age, and uh, knowing that I'm the resident Metallica nerd, they were asking me the other day what I think about. Um, the Blacklist Project and some of these songs that, you know, because they all moved on to hipster music and stuff, most of them. 
uh, and the metal that some of them like is, you know, more sort of decibel magazine metal. But, uh, but anyway, they know St. Vincent. They know like a lot of these like hip artists that are part of this. So they've been checking out these songs. And one of them made the, the comment the other day um, uh, where he was like, yeah, I've been listening to this stuff and, you know, this is interesting and that's interesting. But, you know, I just, I never got into this like later Metallica. And, I, and I'm like, hey, you realize what you're calling later Metallica, we're talking about right now because it's the 30th anniversary. <laughs> 30th but i know what but he means the fifth album you know what i mean yeah but he but he's yeah but it's the fifth album of like what 10 or 11 albums now you know what yes. i mean it's like it, it's it, i know what he means because the black album is it does feel like later metallica but it is also 30 years old and they and, have done quite a bit since it's just it's just funny that perspective it yeah. is totally funny and remember this tour with guns and roses this was a big big pop move like guns and roses yeah, look, if you were a little thrasher with uh, yeah. a jean jacket and, and Testament and Slayer back patches on your on the back of your jacket, Guns N' Roses was what the girls in your high school liked. <laughs> Guns, I'm sorry, that's me. That's, that's I know what you mean, though. They were, they were, but to, I think it they was were more mainstream. They yeah. certainly were, but I think, and this was like Lars' white leather jacket. Uh, but I also think that, and this is something we can delve into more, I also think that, that Guns straddled this they were a bridge between the metallica side that then gets you deeper into thrash and whatever and then what was emerging is death metal and all that morbid angel and i think guns was the the other direction you know on the other side of that was your poisons and your motley crews and whatever i think guns some was like somewhere a, a, a meeting point between those two crowds where it was edgy and dirty and, and grimy enough to transcend the hair metal thing but then for hair metal people it was still hair metally enough melodic enough and you know huge hair and the welcome to the jungle video but before we it's, dig into that though because i'm gonna shut up but i want to say this one other thing is we were andrew brought up the thing about you know and of course taylor swift is is the latest artist but the uh, the whole re-record thing to uh get out of old record deals and so on um are you guys familiar with the Guns N' Roses Appetite re-recording. No. No. So, and this is, uh, and, I, and I might as well plant my flag here and, and, and say it in public somewhere. This is a book project of mine. Oh. Uh, this is, <laughs> I've written two books since coming up with this idea, but I keep wanting to get back to it. Um, you make that sound so easy. I know, right? Uh, see, see, it, see it the Hunter S. Thompson cabin. Um, yeah. Uh, Where's Axel? The Lost Years of Guns N' Roses, 1997 to 2004. I want to do a book that covers, uh, you know, from the minute the last member of the classic lineup was gone until uh, Guns N' Roses returns at the MTV VMAs in 2002. I want to cover that whole lost period which is, which is largely absent from the internet because the articles that were written were a lot of print pieces in like Span and Rolling Stone that never made the transition to digital. But anyway, covering that whole period of, of insanity. But in, in that period, one of the things that happened is when Axel had the newer versions of Guns N' Roses constantly in the studio rehearsing and recording without him day in and day out. And Axel would come in at night after they were all gone and tinker around or maybe not come in. Uh, one of the things that he had them do, and this would be like Robin Fink, Tommy Stinson, 
Dizzy Reed. Uh, I think this might have been when Josh Freese was playing drums. One of the things he had them do to gel as a band is they re-recorded all of Appetite for Destruction. Oh. Plus Patience and You Could Be Mine. And no one's heard it. It was never released. It was just something they did. In the the Adam Sandler movie, Big Daddy, which I think is a Sony movie, um, if I'm not mistaken, it, the over the closing credits, Cheryl Crow covering Sweet Child of Mine plays over the closing credits. Yes. After the song is finished and there's still some more credits running, the Guns N' Roses version comes on. But it's the Guns N' Roses version as re-recorded by Chinese democracy era weird Amazing. secret Guns N' Roses. I think uh, actually, yeah. Rights issues or whatever. And then my favorite thing about it, the funniest, weirdest fact about it, is that apparently, and I don't know if this is if this is like Guns N' Roses urban myth, but supposedly that opening do 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 they could not nail it to sound exactly like the original, just the tone, the vibe, whatever. So in that re-recorded version that only appears in the closing credits of Big Daddy after the Cheryl Crow cover, the very opening guitar lick is sampled from Slash from the original version and then when the song kicks in it's the new band so that's amazing this is what we do here there's there's some there's some guns and roses nerdery that ties yeah, in will, will that be released someday who owns that where and it's in a vault right or something right you know, I, it's it's hard to say because what i also know from that era and this was directly out of the mouth of tom zutout who was um overseeing a lot of those sessions he was as a consultant um a lot of those tapes were wiped at Axel's request when they decided they weren't going to release them. So there's maybe it's sitting in a vault somewhere. And then again, maybe it's not. Um, yeah. And so, wow. um, I mean, you know, there's what, I mean, we know now that, you know, there's this like, you know, just jumping over to Van Halen for a second, there's the massive Eddie Van Halen vault, which now, now that he's passed on and Wolfgang's in charge of it, um, it looks like someone is actually going to finally troll through all of that and find out what might actually be worth putting out. Um, and my guess is that anything that wasn't wiped during like the Guns N' Roses lost years, um, there might be something in there. And, and also, and this is also gets into that, you know, that 1991 show that I've been obsessing about four nights at the forum. I can't imagine that, you know, I have to think that somebody rolled two inch tape for all four notes of those shows, because that would have been a perfect live record, but I don't know if it exists. And, and whoever does know what's in the GNR vault, how much of it exists, how much of it doesn't, um, they're keeping real quiet. Yeah. I mean, you never see Del James posting about what he knows. You know? Oh, the, oh and, and I think that there are, you know, speaking to my uh, legal counsel, as I like to refer to both of you, um, <laughs> I, I'm, I'm sure there are NDAs you know, a filing cabinet's worth of NDAs of anyone who was associated with any point of the 90s Axel Chinese democracy. I can only imagine. Yeah, right. I mean, I yeah, if you're, if you're, if you're Josh Fries or if you're the dude from Primus or what, I'm, I'm sure all those guys signed all sorts of stuff saying they wouldn't, you know, tell you what Axel orders for dinner, let alone what's in the vault. But yeah, whatever, whatever they've got seems to be locked tight. You don't ever hear about stuff leaking. Yeah. You know? um, you certainly do not. Uh, yeah, and I'm fascinated by that whole period as, as, as a big fan of guns. And obviously, like most people, you know, I love Izzy. I love Duff. I love Slash. Um, you know, but uh, 
I don't wholly reject what Axel was trying to do. No, you know, I don't. He think had I- a great voice. He was on fire uh, vocally. He was definitely again. I'm the prog rock guy, right? He was trying yeah. to take chances and stretch it out. And I think like songs like Better and stuff on uh, Chinese Democracy are actually mm-hmm. great songs. I well, actually, and, and certainly when they, four when they great play songs live, when they play the song Chinese Democracy live and Slash kicks into that riff, it sounds great. I remember having this conversation and this, this all ties in. I don't think we're too far off track. I remember having this conversation. I was at lunch with uh, my uh, friend of mine um, who's one of the three principals at Coachella and some other people who work at Coachella. And it was, they had just announced uh, the Guns N' Roses classic, you know, Duff slash Axel was going to be headlining Coachella. And we're all sitting there and we're talking about it. And, and they hadn't announced yet what the lineup of the band was. Right. So they just announced that Slash and Duff were back, but they didn't say who else was in the band and, and people were speculating. And I sat at that table and I accurately predicted, with one exception, the entire lineup of the band. Nice. <laughs> and the one exception, by the way, was the second keyboard player whose drunken tweets or Facebook posts one night bashing bringing back Duff and Slash which he then quickly deleted, but not before the blabbermouse of the world and stuff got a hold of it. That got that guy fired. He was a dude who had been in the Chinese democracy version. He got fired at the 11th hour. And that's when they brought in the young girl who's, who's been the keyboard player, you know, since the release. Yeah. But otherwise I predicted the rest of the lineup. But the other thing I predicted and um, a bunch of people at the table uh, bet me dinner. Uh, I told everyone there that they would play Chinese democracy songs when they returned and everyone was like what that's insane no way no way are slash and duff coming back in guns and roses and playing chinese democracy songs and i was like look the only way axel is going to do this and i totally understand it is if it's in a way that isn't uh, you know invalidating everything he did without them because to dismiss outright all of those years all of those songs that record um would be like admitting you know, that he needed those other guys and that it was a big failure or whatever. And I was like, I think, I, I know that they will play some Chinese democracy songs and I think they might even play a Velvet Revolver song. And while it took a couple more years for the last part of that prediction to come true, it eventually did. They now play Slither. In yeah, there. And, and, now, and, and contrast that with Ben Halen, as you talked about before, right? Yeah. Like, yeah. It's, uh, it's not the norm, right? No, and I loved seeing... Van Halen live with Gary Sharon. I don't like the Gary Sharon album, but I like seeing them live because Sammy would only do the five, right? The five, uh, there, he would do five Roth era songs at any given time. Roth obviously won't do any Sammy songs and frankly can't do Sammy songs. He can barely do Roth songs now, but he could never do Sammy songs. And so when Sharon was in the band, he could sing both of their shit and he they would then go and pull out all these deep cuts from the Roth era that they hadn't played with Sammy ever. So he's like the Tony Martin. Uh, <laughs> yeah. I'd go see, I'd go see, uh, I'd go see either of you fronting Van Halen as long as I got to see Eddie, right? Oh, I, oh for sure. Amen. That's it. But speaking of, you mentioned Tony Martin. What obscure Black Sabbath song did they play, did Guns N' Roses cover at the Rich Stadium show that I was at in 1992, do you guys know? Wow, oh, okay. super obscure Black Sabbath song that Guns N' Roses covered that day on on the tour 
in uh, with Metallica in 1992. It's, it's, it's funny. I somehow like I have the I have the set lists from the Wikipedia entry on my screen, and I somehow missed that when I looked. So uh, take a look. Look at look at even the titles and see if you know which one is a Black Sabbath cover. Hold on. Let me, let me While you're looking for that, this brings up a very interesting related point. Something I thought about seeing Guns N' Roses at Coachella and then again later on that same Not In This Lifetime tour, amazing tour name, Better Than Hell Freezes Over even. Um, which is that Guns N' Roses, for the size of the band that they are, has shockingly little material out there, right? There's, there's Appetite, there's the Illusion Records, which you could kind of think of as one double album, and there's Chinese Democracy. So when you see them live and they play a blistering two and a half hour, three hour set, like a third of the set are cover songs. And yes, you don't really sir. think about it that way because you think of Knocking on Heaven's Door as a gun song, even though it, it's not, you know, and they- Or you could about, be mine, or that's not, or, uh, right? Not, or or uh, Live and Let Die. They do, yeah, Live yes. and Let Die. Sorry, and, right, yeah. And, uh, you know, the theme Attitude from The Godfather. Attitude was in the set by that point. Yep, they do Attitude. They do uh, New Rose. Wild Horses was in the set at that point. Yeah, it's just, and I'm not knocking them for it, but uh, it's just interesting. It's an interesting fact to think about. And I think about this too, you know, when I'm doing my newsletter and you see like, oh, you know, the Red Hot Chili Peppers streamed this many million last week. Guns N' Roses streamed this many million. But then you have to take into account how many more Red Hot Chili Peppers songs there are. <laughs> on Spotify for right. people to stream than there are Guns N' Roses songs, you know? Okay, so Eric, I'm looking at the set list. They actually did a cover of It's All Right, which is the last song on Never Say Die where Bill Ward sings the vocals. That's insane. What, what really? the fuck? <laughs> wow. How cool is that? The biggest band in the world. Deep diving, they don't give a fuck. They're going to play whatever the hell they want. That is, as, that is as deep cut as it gets for, for a band like Sabbath. Yeah, they did it, and they put it right in between Mine and November Rings. <laughs> I might have been the only guy in the stadium that was stoked, right? But yeah. Yeah. <laughs> here, here, yeah. here's, here's, here's a fun fact of that era that I may or may not have told one or both of you at some point. I went to Farm Aid in Indianapolis, Indiana at Market Square Arena, uh, you know, hometown hero, John Cougar Mellencamp, whatever year that was that Guns N' Roses played. And I went solely to see Guns N' Roses. I paid whatever the huge ticket price was, didn't care about a single other artist on the bill at the time. And Guns N' Roses came out and played two fucking songs. And it was a, tr and, and one of which- And Steven one was a cover. Yeah, yeah, and Stephen didn't know it. Yeah, but you you did. However, the upside is that was actually the last time Stephen Adler played with the band as a full member. That's right. Which of course I wow. couldn't have done at the time. But yeah, yeah. But, but the and the other bonus was, um, you know, it was it, they did a UK sub song and they did Civil War and I hadn't heard you know no one had heard Civil War yet. Um, so yeah. that was neat. But yeah, but it was like what <laughs> two fucking yeah songs. they did they did Down on the Farm which ended up on um, uh, on, on Spaghetti Incident and it was actually like like. As it turned out, um, that was actually an onstage audible by Axel because he went. He, he had the band start going into it. But as it turns out, when they, they'd been jamming it a couple of times in the rehearsal room, but not with Stephen because he was already like kind of like not showing up. Yeah. So basically, like Stephen didn't know the song, and that's why like the performance, his performance is so shambolic because he's guessing. And so it's uh, 
but it was essentially Axel decided, okay, let's do our new song, but then I'm from here and I hate Indiana, so let's fuck this place and let's do the most obnoxious song that we can think of. And so yep. that was, and, and as, and I guess when he made that decision that he- Let's piss all over farmers at Farm Aid. <laughs> yeah. And so it was, uh, yeah. And so he, he made that decision and didn't remember that Stephen didn't know the song. Insane. I never knew that. Like flipping off the audience at a charity event, right? Pretty much. Yeah. Yeah. So here's an interesting thing that, that leads us into this. I had uh, Billy Duffy from the cult, of course, uh, on an episode of Speaking the Story a while back. And obviously, one of the big topics of conversation were all the various points that the cult, uh, you know, intersected with Metallica most famously being that tour. But an interesting fact that, that comes from that whole period is that apparently, according to Matt Sorum, uh, it was Lars who was responsible for getting, you know, we're talking about Steven Adler leaving. It was apparently Lars who was responsible for getting Matt Sorum in Guns N' Roses uh, because they'd known each other on the Metallica cult tour. And uh, Lars is apparently the guy who gave Slash Matt Sorum's phone number. Well, well, there was that too, but I, they, like, GNR would have known him directly because didn't the cult and GNR tour during the Appetite era? Uh, but was Matt Sorum in the cult then? Was he? Let's look. Because I feel like I feel like the cult had a lot of bass players and drummers. Let's. This is actually. This will be relevant to the actual. Uh, to yeah. the actual. Matt Sorum, formerly of Why Can't Tori Read, the failed hair metal band fronted by Tori Amos, who released one major label album. <laughs> okay. And the Y was just the letter Y. I think Sorum might have been in the band by this point, because he was definitely in the band by the time they were out opening before Metallica a year later. Uh, yeah, for sure. And, and, and he's saying that it was a result of that. I'm looking at uh, an Instagram post from December of last year where Matt's wishing Lars a happy birthday. He says, happy birthday to my pal of 31 years. Oh, wait. Okay. So in the U.S., the cult now consisting of Asbury, Duffy, Stuart Warner, and Kid Chaos were supported by the then unknown Guns N' Roses. So, yeah, I think you're right. Um, let's see. Yeah, Sorum is somebody that, that gets associated with the cult and Guns N' Roses, right? Rightfully so. And yet, you know. Yeah, he, didn't, he joined, it looks like, uh, yeah, it looks like he didn't even play, uh, he did not play on uh, Sonic Temple. It looks oh, wow. Like he was, well, at least I'll have to check that, but it looks That's like. That's the only record that I even associate with him, honestly. Band, it said the band went on tour in support of the new album and new single with yet another new drummer, Matt Sorum. Yeah. So let me look at. Let me see and, the, and Sonic Temple was a Bob Rock record. Yeah, hold on. Let me see who's in that. And this is coming off the back of the cult doing a Rick Rubin record. Yeah, where, Matt, he, took, where he took the, the gothy uh, new romantic Brit rock band and turned them into ACDC, <laughs> much like yeah. he did with Sam Hain around the same time. Yeah, actually, uh, Mickey Curry played drums on uh, Sonic Temple. So yeah, you're, you're absolutely right. I'd... Well, well, and that's the thing, and, and more power to, to Sorum, right? But but we associate him with those two huge bands. But his contributions to those bands, 
not quite the same size of the association, if that makes sense. Whereas Velvet, you know, he was a co-founding member and I think um, for better or worse uh, was, was one of the leaders in that band. He was even like singing, um, you know, it seemed to be a big driving force behind the scenes as well as behind the kit in Velvet. Let's 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 well before we dive in, I'll ch let's check Soren's Wikipedia entry and see what it says about how he got recruited. Um, okay, in 1989, Slash saw Soren live with the Cult on the Sonic Temple tour, and shortly after, Soren joined GNR as Steven Adler's replacement. So, what it doesn't say is, did Lars tell Slash go see this guy? Well, here, well, here's well, here's what Soren said on Instagram seven or eight months ago. Uh, we met when the cult opened the And Justice for All tour and spent many nights on the road together living the life of rock and roll. The cult did close to six months on that tour and the adventures were insane and are still with me to this day. After that, we remained close as Lars was the one that gave Slash my phone number to get in GNR. Of course, okay. the epic GNR Metallica Stadium tour was legendary, wow. which brings us right where we need to be. This is uh, <laughs> grown men who live... Uh, 40 minutes apart in a pandemic. This is how we hang out on Saturday. Pretty much. Yeah, I'm actually seeing my first post-pandemic live show later today. A day? Today, yes. I am driving out to the desert to see Yawning Man play at Joshua Tree National Park. Crazy. So, yeah, they're like space rock band. The bassist of um, Yawning Man is Mario Lally, who was in Fatso Jetson. So he's basically one of the granddaddies of that entire desert rock scene that spawned Caius. So uh, enjoy. Yeah. I still haven't, I don't know about you, Eric, I, I still haven't seen a show post like since the pandemic. I, I went to Nashville six weeks ago and I walked down Broadway and I went into, you know, 10 different uh, bars, each of which had a band on the stage. So that's, so you could go, I've been to one, two, three, all night. I've been to 10 shows now. 30 bands in one night, right? Well, which actually, and, and actually, like, what I, what I meant to, uh, my, my first show I thought was, was not going to be tonight. I thought it was actually going to be Guns next month. And Eric, I'm presuming you are going because you're semi-working. Uh, yeah. Um, Eric, yeah. Uh, Ryan, are you planning to go? Uh, I wasn't, but that doesn't mean that I won't. Okay. <laughs> August 19th, Bank of California. Is that the place in Ontario? No, that's the uh, USC. Oh, okay. It's right by the LA Coliseum. It's, it's the new soccer stadium that holds 35,000. I don't know that I've been there for anything. We well, all played there. Uh, that's where I, that's the show I saw. The Misfits also played there. Oh, yeah, that's right. I remember seeing the Misfits uh, that it was at Bank of California. It's a small stadium, and actually, this, the sound isn't bad. Um, and uh, it's, it, it was outstanding to see Maiden there. By the way, let's now devolve into 20 minutes on the on the new Maiden single. If I'm kidding, but the uh, uh, you know, like let's go, guys. Let's talk Metallica and Guns N' Roses. We're so, starting. Want to lead? <laughs> no, we started a while ago. Yeah, uh, I, I I think I think Andrew should lead. This was this was his uh, his brainchild, and we'll uh, we'll all okay. By the way, Andrew Carter's third appearance on Speaking Destroy. Eric German's second appearance on Speaking Destroy. You guys are, uh, you are now tied, Andrew, with Doc Coyle. Uh, and uh, one more and you'll you'll be the champion. <laughs> well, um, you're, that, that puts you're the Howard Jones to his Jamie Josta. <laughs> <laughs>
it puts me in very good company and that's flattering. So thank you. So, yes. Okay. So um, let's dive into the legendary Guns N' Roses Metallica co-headline tour of 1992. I believe it was what, 26 shows over the summer, 24 in the U.S. and two in Canada, or actually one, maybe 1.5 in Canada. <laughs> but uh, it was... Um, looking back on it now, and I think the thing that really um, you know, piqued my interest in this is that late last year, I had a, a deep dive conversation uh, about Guns N' Roses and live shows from that era um, with, with, with uh, a woman who I think might be the biggest Guns N' Roses fan I know to the point where she has seen the band 14 or 15 times and counting on the Not In This Lifetime tour. So that's pretty intense. Um, and so um, we were talking about shows from the early 90s. And what that led me to do was to start once again, searching for a bootleg of a show, a gun show from 1991, the, the, the famous four hour concert um, at the forum where they went on at 11 and played till almost three in the morning. I'd been trying to find this bootleg for, you know, since 1991, since I read an article and rip about it. And finally, 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 I was able to track one down in Japan at the end of last year. And it's, uh, you know, somebody held a Walkman and, you know, with a couple things, uh, with a couple of mics, managed to get a full recording of the entire show. It's passable. Um, and the show lived up to expectations. And that just led to kind of, um, I'm actually going to be publishing a piece on it next month uh, for, on Live for Live Music, because it'll be the 30th anniversary of that. But it also led into just getting into the entire user illusion which looking back on it now, it's hard to believe you can see a band act like that and get away with it on the <laughs> level that they were doing at it now. And so you had this completely out of control. They, they, they were somehow surging completely out of control, but still going upwards. And then all of a sudden that runaway train meets with Metallica who have been on this, uh, this steady upward progression for the last decade doing the most uncompromising things. And then all of a sudden they make a, yet another swerve in their career and decide to make a record that you know was a little more accessible to everybody else. And then all of a sudden they explode in a way that no one could have possibly predicted 10 years earlier when they formed. And then somehow someone got the idea, let's put these two, uh, let's take this rocket, which is now heading all the way to space and like, let's cross it with this runaway train and let's put it in stadiums and see what happens. And it was, um, yeah. And, and then as it turns out, talking with the two of you, it turns out that the three of us saw the fourth, fifth and sixth shows on this tour before we even knew each other. And so- In which order, Andrew? Which was, who saw the fourth, who saw the fifth, who saw the sixth? Uh, the fourth was Indianapolis. So that would have been Ryan. Um, you were the fifth, I think three days later, in uh, at Orchard Park outside Buffalo, and then the, the next day after that, they dropped down to Pittsburgh and played through the stadium. So I saw the there you go, there you go. And by this point, and all of us were, were fans of both bands, so I think it was just given that Guns is about to start start back up at the end of this month, and I guess we're still waiting for Metallica to you know announce uh, near term plans. It seemed like this would be a really, really good time to dive into this because yeah, and, and and add to that that this is the uh, 30th anniversary of the Black Album this year. Correct, correct. And all the celebrations happening, 
around that. Uh, yeah, it, it's quite timely. You know, it's funny you were talking about it. No one could have predicted. Uh, case in point, the most recent episode of Speak and Destroy, the 100th episode with the great D. Snyder. D. Snyder tells me the story about turning to Mark Mendoza while watching Metallica open for Twisted Sister and saying, you know, these guys got a lot of heart, but they're never going to go anywhere. <laughs> Which props to D for for owning that in 2021. We all, yeah. we all we all have those moments. As as uh, Andy likes to remind me from time to time, I passed on managing Black Veil Brides. Oops. Well, there there are uh, you know look, Metallica was a band we've talked about the prog uh, procli proclivities and the punk rock you know uh, underground nature of their earliest material. And those two combinations don't exactly scream hit to the music. <laughs> right. The band that didn't have a uh, uh, a music video until uh, 1988 and the album prior to the Black Album. And it was for a song called One that is not exactly verse, chorus, verse, chorus, verse, chorus. And so the video has movie dialogue cut in and out of it a bunch of times. <laughs> like, like it was still like a disruptive, like, okay, fine, MTV, here's a video, but it's... So as you pointed out earlier, when they finally decided to like kind of make it digestible for, uh, and you, as you said, uh, um, uh, Enter Sandman's one riff essentially, right? I mean, when it you- opens the album, it was the when first you video. really yeah. boil it down like that, uh, you know, I guess it worked, right? And that's where Guns N' Roses represented this mainstream band that was kind of, you know, more old school in some sense, you're right, it touched on and captured the glitz and glamour of the hair metal era, but it was really more of an Aerosmith, Rolling Stones type vibe, right? And they were me, our Rolling Stones, I think. To so. me, that was, uh, you know, I, like I said, I came, I was more into Slayer and Morbid Angel and Cannibal Corpse and Testament and stuff. And Guns N' Roses was, the, you know, the the stuff that the, the cooler, more credible version of what the more mainstream people liked. And so I would literally, you know, be cool with it, but the bluesier based stuff, you were talking about the cult earlier and stuff like that, like that kind of rock to me was my older brother or dad's rock. And my rock was more angular, more, uh, uh, you know, European flavored, more funky and faster and double kick drums and guttural growls and, such so this meeting of these two where guns kind of got down in it with the young uh you know aggressive metallica and uh uh and got uh and metallica kind of raised the bar commercially to the point where they were able to uh tour with a band like guns and roses you know it was a perfect storm and don't sleep probably this is one of the more underrated aspects of this tour but i was a huge faith no more fan at that mm. time as well that old tour and you know for me Fake No More uh, had a big hit with their rap rock song called Epic but what they did when they came back with Angel Dust which was a giant F you to everybody I mean it's listen look at that song titles even and just think about that's where Mike Patton became Mike Patton right and when you look at um, how he followed up a massively successful commercial single with songs like Jizz Lobber and you know like like just you know screaming into the microphone that is not a commercial record that angel dust uh, record mid, mid, what what teenage kid can't relate to midlife crisis right, right, right. <laughs> yeah but but it, it it was uh uh you know perfect for me you couldn't have had a better bill of three bands all in one 
Now, of course, we hustled over to the stadium that day and got up in the stands and watched uh, Faith No More from a million miles away at the front front of the stage in the broad daylight. And that maybe wasn't the best way to experience that record. But um, it was uh, it was just cool to have them. I still have to this day the tour shirt that I bought that day. Nice. Instead of a Metallica or a gun shirt, I bought nice. Faith No More Angel Dust shirt with that swan on the front or whatever it is. And I got the tour dates on the back to prove it. And every once in a while, I can stretch it out to the point where I might be able to get away with wearing it. <laughs> and it's a prized possession I'll never let go of. You know, what else is interesting as we're talking about this is, of course, <clears throat> no conversation of this tour is complete without a discussion of the uh, infamous incident in Canada. And uh, just a couple of days ago, as we're recording this, Metallica released a live clip from this tour with uh, John Marshall, who was guitar tech at the time, filling in for James, who couldn't play guitar uh, because of that pyro accident. And this also brings up an, an interesting point, which is that I'm looking at the, the uh, tour dates. And yeah, it goes Washington, D.C., uh, East Rutherford, Detroit, Indy, Buffalo, Pittsburgh, uh, East Rutherford, again, <laughs> giant stadium. Uh, and then it goes canceled, 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 Montreal, canceled, 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 canceled. Phoenix, <laughs> New Mexico. <laughs> it's like, there's just such a, a run of, uh, I think there were as many canceled dates, you know, the second week as there, as there were actual yeah. dates that happened the first week. I do remember that the three, the first three cancellations after Giants Stadium were because Axel had blown his voice out. Um, he was singing so hard and essentially it was doctor's orders. So um, that that will happen from time to time. Um, so I remember, uh, and then I think the, uh, the cancellations afterwards were, um, I think it was, you know, Metallica had to figure out somebody to replace James as a player. And I think the, and also I think there was a lot of damage control from, you know, guns walking off what seven or eight songs in and starting a riot. So if I remember right, uh, so, the Montreal show was uh, Pyro went off at the wrong time and, and burned James Hetfield right in the middle of the set. I don't know how much of their set they got through, but they had to call it during Fade to Black. So it was most of the way through. Um, I, I, I want to point out also, and this is just something that I think will be interesting to all three of us, having each of us worked with bands, you know, Andrew and I as managers and, and, and both of you as attorneys. Um, you know, we talk about Axel blowing out his voice, which is very much a real thing. And it happens, especially a long set like that, especially a voice like that. Counterpoint, though, is that when you look at this itinerary, um, it was RFK Stadium, the Giants Stadium in a row. But then they took two days off in between for the next show. And then two days on, two days off, two days on, uh, two days off. So it, you know, there was a lot of uh, rest and recovery in that itinerary, um, you know, with doing two days on, two days off. Um, I think they, 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 they kind of had to stagger these dates because this, like, if it's on a weekday, you have to miss work. But, and, and I always think about the Jason Newstead moment behind the music where he's, uh, you know, he's, he's describing Axel during the riot where it's like, you know, Nero fiddling while Rome burns. Where he's like, you know, the guy's sitting there with a, a flute of champagne and a 
and a cigarette, uh, you know, you're, you're, you need to take care of your voice. You're drinking <laughs> champagne and smoking a cigarette. <laughs> I always think about that Newstead moment. And the so, intensity so, and anger in his voice. <laughs> that, that was the height of uh, the, is Axel going to show up, right? Like everybody was, that, that, that was almost part of the show, I think. Yes. Drama of what time were they going to go on and when were they going to show up? And I will tell you at my show, it was two hours between Metallica leaving the stage and Guns N' Roses taking two hours. That sounds about right for us. I know we had, uh, I don't know if it was a full two hours, but it was a significant way. But, um, and that was and always the joke with Metallica is they were like, well, you know, it's a co-headline, but who's going to close? And they were like, well, Guns N' Roses closes because if it gets too late in the night, we're too drunk. And if it's too early, Axel's not here. Yeah, and I think it was also, I think th there had been talk of swapping headline slots, but I think Metallica made the decision early. Um, we at least, we know that we can go on on time and finish on time. So let's make sure that we do our part and so that we get paid and we move things along. And so they decided, and it was also a way just to kind of duck the whole thing, you know, because I think they, they could have easily made the argument that, you know, each, you know, the, the band swap in terms of, you know, the, the running order, but uh, Metallica chose the path of less resistance. And I think it was, you know, I, I think the public reason would have been, yeah, because we'll be too drunk later on. But I think really what it came down to is um, if guns are late going on in the afternoon, we might not go on till midnight. So at least we can hold up our end of the deal and go on. And so, yeah, they're, it's, they're also, it's also polarizing. Metallica, as, as mainstream as they were, there was still probably a segment of the audience that couldn't deal and oh, yeah. out and went home, right? Well, there, 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 were, there were Guns fans in the parking lot during Metallica's set because I could see them. Uh, I remember, you know, the, you know, I remember at one point I was out in the hall and you could still see there were there were there were people that were just tailgating right up until when they thought guns were going to come on. Now, now, part of the delay between bands, and this is kind of weird to bring up, but um, I, it's a memory that'll never leave me, and it's kind of anachronistic, so I think it's interesting to raise. Do you guys remember what they did between the sets with the screen and the cam the roving camera? Oh, yes, I do. <laughs> do you remember, Ryan? Yes. yes. Not yes. something that would fly today, right? But they Not at all. <laughs> they immediate immediate cancellation. Also, it would all be getting shared in real time. Well, also uh, let's let's, let's remind our younger our, our younger listeners what was actually going on, which yes. is the guys who were running the cameras that would actually project the band onto the big screens had turned them around to face out on the crowd, and they would pan in on really attractive women and get them to try to like flash their breasts, mm -hmm. and they would stay there and hold the camera almost like pressure, and the crowd would. Yeah. And they'd go, they would go back. Yeah. They, they would go back to people to pressure them. Yeah, and so, yeah. so and, and basically, I, I think in Pittsburgh there might have been one or two people that actually went through with it. Um, and then, oh, in uh, Buffalo, there was quite a few that went through with it. But right. I remember there was there was one guy. The funniest moment of the whole thing is they they kept on going back to one to one woman who was very obviously not going to do it. And eventually, like I, I think maybe they didn't realize that maybe her boyfriend had gone out to the bathroom or something like that. And they went back to this woman for about the fourth or fifth time. And this time her boyfriend was sitting there and like this time he stood up and basically like, like swung his fist, like towards the camera. And like, it, I mean, it was real. I mean, he was like, 
Like, and at that point, the camera were like, okay, we could have a problem here. And they didn't go back to her again. Well, and, and Ryan pointed out that, uh, um, you know, in the era of cell phones and stuff, that footage would have been shared or whatever. And right. one of the funny memories I have of Rich Stadium in that same summer, maybe it was the summer prior, maybe it was that summer, I also went to that same stadium to go see uh, The Grateful Dead, right? With Jerry Garcia. Oh, yeah, I was at that show. And a really famous story for me was we didn't have cell phones and we were sitting in the back of a van drinking a keg, of course, the bright, you know, 20, <laughs> 22 year olds that we were. And we got caught in stadium traffic pulling off. And I said, I got to pee, pull over. And my buddy was like, no way, I'm not pulling over. So I was like, well, I'll just hop out of the back of the van and I'll go pee on the side of the road. And he's like, don't you dare. And I said, no, 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 I'm going to do it. And uh, he said, I'm not stopping. And I said, don't worry, I'll be right back. And I went and peed and turned around and traffic had moved. And I had 10 bucks in my pocket, no ticket and no cell phone, right? And uh, I turned around and jumped in the car with some other fans or whatever and had a lovely day in the parking lot of Rich Stadium. And just as everyone was moving into the stadium, I had no idea where I, how I was going to get back to Syracuse was several hours away and I had no money and no ticket, but I just so happened to run into my friends and go into the show, like right as on perfect on cue in a parking lot full of, you know, tens of thousands of people. And I guess <laughs> things work out that way back then. Right? And, but, and Laura, Laura was with you, right? Yes. Yes. Yeah, and she so, married you anyway. <laughs> well and speaking of which i do have to give a shout out to my lovely wife who i've been with about 30 years uh the uh that this concert this rich stadium uh guns rose metallica concert was another brick in the wall of how to have my falling in love with her because she was feeling sick that day that we were supposed to get in the car and drive to this show and there was no way we were going to miss it and i think she was really really in rough shape but uh, she got it together and came and rocked out for Guns N' Roses, Metallica, Faith No More. And that's where I knew she, <laughs> like, maybe I'm going to marry this girl, right? Because uh, right. we had a blast. Oh, yeah, so I think... Um, I was going to say, just real quick, Andrew, to answer your question from earlier, that Montreal show with the uh, infamous pyro accident, uh, Metallica was... They'd played nine songs already, done the bass solo, guitar solo, and then had just come back out to fade to black uh, when the accident happened. Okay, so maybe half, you know, a little over half the show, enough to contractually call it a show, but definitely not a full set. Yeah. So, another thing about the set list, let's talk about the Metallica set list. Mm -hmm. They rip, right? If you look at the set list, it's not that much different from a set list you might see today, at least yep. the show that I saw. <laughs> But if you come, they come out of the box with three or four songs that are not black album songs, right? That are older songs. Um, and then they ripped into, you know, three or four black album songs in a row. And I think it was, you know, Sad But True. And, uh, but they played Of Wolf and Man. They yeah. always played real early in that. I don't think you see that much today, right? No. Well, this, this, this set was actually not that far away from what they'd been playing on the previous leg of the black tour. Cause I'd seen them twice earlier that year. Um, I happened to be in Florida um, in March and I saw the infamous Orlando riot show. And then a month later saw them in Hartford. It was the last show that they played on that leg of the tour before they flew over for the Freddie Mercury tribute mm. in London. 
And this set is actually, it's not more than a few songs off. Um, and of Wolf and Man was turning up in shows at that time. Uh, I think they were switching that one out in and out with Through the Never. I think it might've been, actually, no, I'm sorry. I, I know, um, but yeah, I think that, that was, it was, um, I think it might've turned up at the tail end of that leg, but it was still kind of a, hey, wow, they're playing this, you know. Uh, yeah, and uh, my favorite Black Album songs are the weirder ones, right? I mean, not, that's, that's too easy to say now because there is this element of how many times have you heard Sabatru and Enter Sandman and Unforgiven or whatever. But the uh, um, uh, I like My Friend of Misery and The God That Failed. And, you know, I, I, I don't think those were played live very often. I think... You know, you know what's interesting is when they did... Uh, the Black Album from start to finish a few years back, uh, you know, as they've done with Master of Puppets, generally when bands do that album set, it's the album front to back in chronological order. When Metallica did the Black Album, they did it backwards. That was a brilliant move. Which it was brilliant and very savvy of Lars because, yeah, then you, you, you close with all the biggest songs. <laughs> you know, Inner Sandman still lasts because you went yeah. backwards. That's a great idea. And for me, I remember the big thing that I remember about the Metallica set in Pittsburgh is they opened with Creeping Death, which which was great. But what they did is they made one small change, but it turned out to be a huge one and one that generally stuck, which is that for uh, the entire Black Tour up until this set, they had been opening the shows with Sandman and then Creeping Death. And which is, as, you know, and, you know, Sandman is a fantastic opener, you know, during the arena shows with the black staging, which was amazing. You know, the, the, the lighting rig would come up as the band was playing the intro. And it is as far as a one-two punch for a band making the jump from, okay, now we really are um, a arena selling out band every night. Uh, we're making the jump to being one where it's not just metalheads, but we're making the, 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 the wider jump to the point where we're gonna have a diamond record in a few years, Creeping Death at, or Sandman and Creeping Death is as good of a one-two punch as you could possibly <laughs> throw because Sandman is, I mean, it's, 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 it's so, it's so direct and so effective. And then you go straight from there to one of the three or four best songs you, that they have. Yeah. You and, don't get more direct than chanting die, yeah. die, yeah. die. And, and, when, and, and when you've got Jason Newstead there, you not only do you have die die you have motherfucker die yes and, uh, <laughs> and, and you so, get those new set backups on of wolf and man which is just ryan there are so many uh uh metallica songs that i only can now think of the lyrics uh sung by hetfield live right with the, yeah, all the little same pieces. yeah and yeah. so what but with um with with, with the uh, the guns all of a sudden the big switch that they make is they take sandman and they move it from the set opener to, is it the set closer? Yes. Uh, or the, the, the show closer, I'm sorry. I guess they, uh, they move it to the very end of the encore. Um, now, I guess it ended up being kind of the second set closer a lot of the time now. But for me, that was kind of, I remember thinking, wow, okay, that's different. And also, the, you know, it also, that made sure that the stragglers who were outside tailgating for the first hour uh. got to catch it. That's <laughs> a good, good move. Now, yeah, that, that, that also feels very transitional, right? Almost like it's the band recognizing we've now crossed the threshold. We've crossed the route on yeah. where uh, Sandman's yeah. now the hit song. One's not the hit song. Master of Puppets isn't the hit song. This is 
this is the what was the first single off Injustice? I know the answer, but I don't know if you guys know. Uh, it was Harvester. Harvester of Sorrow. So yeah. they and like that was not the level of success, obviously. That no. was when they made the video. And, and, I, and I know and I know that because the first time I ever saw Metallica was Monsters of Rock with Van Hagar <laughs> in okay. Indianapolis. Monsters of Rock, Dokken, yep, Van Halen, uh, Metallica. It was it was it was Van Hagar headlining, right? Scorpions, Dokken, Metallica, Kingdom Come, Kingdom Metallica Come, second of five, Kingdom right. Clone as we called them back then. The the, the original Greta Van Fleet as I call them now. <laughs> um, That's but, amazing. But yeah, they played Harvester. I, 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 the album wasn't out yet, and uh, obviously Metallica wasn't getting played on the radio, and there was no internet. So that was the first time, you know, my friend and I had heard Harvester of Sorrow was because well, they're playing a new song live. This is crazy. And they had the merch, the Harvester of Sorrow merch, the Pusshead drawing or whatever, if you look. Probably. I don't remember. I, I, I remember people coming back from the show with uh, 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 new merch, but the uh, uh, that song is still in the set. That's early on mixed in with your Creeping Death and, and that stuff on this yeah. tour, this Guns yeah. Or they're still playing Harvester of Sorrow, which today Harvester of Sorrow would be like, whoa, they played Harvester of Sorrow. That's unexpected. But back then it was it was a single. It was a hit. Uh, we should jump back, I think, before we we completely deep dive into because I think we should deep dive Metallica setlist and, and Guns N' Roses setlist. And we've obviously made our way through the Metallica one quite a bit already. But you know, you talked about Faith No More earlier. And one of the bits of lore about this tour, right, is that uh Nirvana was was highly courted to be the opener, yeah. which would have been the ultimate, you know, early 90s bill, Guns N' Roses, Metallica, and Nirvana. And Nirvana rather famously passed because um, they were uh, too cool for it. You know, these were these were the lame old metal bands already for Nirvana, you know? Totally, um, totally. And then, yeah, and then that's how we ended up uh, with Faith No More. And... Um, you know, frankly, saw... frankly, Nirvana would have would have been a better choice in the sense that they, I think as much as we don't, you know, associate uh, Kurt Cobain with bloated stadium rock, I believe that those songs would translate better than uh, uh, whatever Faith No More was doing in a stadium. Yeah, and it would certainly make it a, a much more legendary time capsule tour, right? To have 1992, sure. uh, those three bands together. Um but yeah, and then at some point, because, you know, it was Faith No More for all of the shows that we're talking about early in the tour, but at some point, Body Count uh, was on the tour, right? And, so, so was Soundgarden. And and of this, I'm looking at this website that says... Motorhead. Motorhead shows. was on, too, yeah, yeah. Which I didn't know that until right now. You know, and which show did Body Count not play? I don't know. Play Coliseum, I believe. They weren't allowed to. Oh, because this was peak. Yeah, yeah ninety two. This is peak. Uh, Dan Quayle and, and cop killer. Yeah, exactly. W. Bush, the police union. By the way, Grammy award winning body count. <laughs> <laughs> oh, oh, oh! You mean the 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 cop killer singer who uh, has played a cop on television for the last like, twenty years? <laughs> Listen, it's all the show. But the uh, um, yeah, and you know, Metallica had entered into an era of choosing opening acts i think that were uh you know 
Ozzy-esque. I used to think of Ozzy as the gold standard of minting new bands by taking them out. Of like tour. Metallica on the Puppet Store. It's Metallica, right? Yeah. Then Metallica on the Justice Tour, I saw him with Queensryche doing Operation Mindcrime. Uh, I don't know. I think that was only some of the shows. You guys might have seen a different show. But uh, by the time we moved to, to this tour, you know, I felt like whoever was going to support Metallica was going to be that was almost some some kind of anointment as you're yeah. one so fake and, it's still, and it's still kind of it still is although sometimes the blessing is just like a cred blessing right like if right. you're casa or kevlar or tech band name i never know how to say um the sword you know all people i've had on the podcast but those are bands that opening for metallica didn't make them huge but it made them that much cooler you know. Yeah, I mean, in the industry, there's definitely today in the era of the internet, when everyone can sample music and it's much more easy to be introduced. I think the power of opening a big show uh, as an underground band is less uh, interesting. Like, you know, Tool yeah. can take out whoever they want, or it doesn't mean that those people are instant stars. But back in this era, you were an instant, you were on the map. If That's a great point, because you, you were there. You know what, I think part of that, that's a really interesting thing to discuss, because I've never really thought about this thoroughly, more sort of surface level, right? But I wonder if this is because these bands were talking about Guns, Metallica, they were still in that prime of discovery for people. So they're like, maybe they discovered Metallica and Guns just a year or two before. So they're still in that mode. They're still at that age. They're still the kind of music fan that is constantly getting new stuff. So, you know, they see a Faith No More. They see a, a Body Count. They see even a Queensryche. Um, and, uh, and they're still consuming things. Whereas now, I often advise bands against taking some of these huge tours that look so amazing on paper. Like, oh, this band's our heroes. And it's these huge venues and whatever. And I, I'm the naysayer going hey guys just so you know you're going to be playing in the daytime uh that giant venue is going to be like one you know like 10 percent full people are going to be getting beer and pretzels and buying t-shirts that are not yours you might sell two t-shirt designs for 50 bucks each that no one will buy <laughs> you know and at best the best outcome is that some people in the crowd are going to nod their heads and be like polite to you and by the time the band they came to see comes on, they've totally forgotten. You, you just described Faith No More set in July. <laughs> Even back then. In Buffalo, right? But, but I, wonder I, was... because, I wonder if it's worse now because now you're, if you're going to see Metallica or Guns or, or those kind of bands, you're just, you're such a diehard fan and it's been such a long time and you're not necessarily a person who is out there looking for new bands. You well, I, mean? I also think that, Ryan, if you are a person who's out there looking for new bands, you can find them. You don't need a tour. Okay, yeah. Right? Sure. And if you see a tour poster with a band name on it, about clickety click, and you'll hear it in 10 seconds. We That's have true. Ever in our pocket, right? And so yeah. you don't need a tour. You don't need to buy a ticket and go stand in a space to know whether you like a band. And it's just a different vibe now. So right. this is interesting because the last time I saw Metallica in a huge venue, other than when Andrew and I saw them at, at SNM too, which is obviously its own unique thing, but was the Rose Bowl. And, uh, you know, that tour they had Avenged and Gojira and I think Volbeat, very different legs or whatever opening. 
Metallica could have sold out the Rose Bowl without Avenged Sevenfold, right? Avenged knows that. Metallica knows that. What do you guys think is even the appeal of doing that at this point? And I know there's some tours in recent years, like where they took Jim Brewer out as comedian and, uh, you know, Joe Sib to DJ punk records and didn't even have an opening band. But, um, you know, is that purely just the band, you know, wanting to pay it forward and hook up? I, I'm, I'm not entirely sure that they could sell out every venue without Avenged Sevenfold on that tour, right? Really? I dispute that fundamental premise, but I don't know that to be true, but we're talking, Ryan, we're not talking 20,000 seats or 15,000 seats in a hockey arena, but like when they play those shows where they're doing like the Staples Center, I don't think every show is sold out, right? Always guaranteed 100%. Definitely. This isn't to denigrate Avenge by any stretch. I'm a huge fan. And when you're talking about 80,000 people or 70,000 people or 60,000, I think they might need a little bit of help there. But mm. that's, I'm not sure of that. What do you think, Andrew? Well, I think it's a combination of a couple things. Number one is that... Um, you know, uh, Avenged could probably pull some people that that might not have bought the ticket otherwise. But also, this is a big outdoor stadium show on the weekend, and by adding at least one other band to the bill, because I think most of that tour, I think Gojira was the opening band because uh, uh, they were on first, and I think Gojira was out as Metallica's you know primary support act when they were doing uh, arenas. But by adding um, a, a headline level band like Avenged to a show like this. What it also does is it gets people out of the parking lots and into the stadium. And, you know, mm. I mean, um, so, you know, the, getting people in and out of the stadium is, is a thing, especially when you have an older facility like the Rose Bowl, which is sort of antiquated and wasn't built for 80,000 rock fans to descend on it. And so it's, it's a way to just kind of make the day a little more special and, um, you know, Metallica is pulling in enough money that they can afford to yeah. um, you know, throw some, you know, th throw good money at, you know, at, um, at a You lengthen the tour, out. you lengthen the tour, you sell some more, I mean, you lengthen the right. day, sell some more beer, but, um, and you youthen up the crowd, I think, yeah. for Metallica crowd having an Avenged on there. By the way, um, the, the Avenged camp, uh, not only respects Metallica, I think Revere's is... Uh... Oh, 100%. And in fact, it, you know, Avenge ties into our discussion today. <sighs> Here comes a dad joke. One might say sevenfold because uh, <laughs> they Avenge sevenfold is Metallica plus Guns N' Roses with a little That's bit great. of Floyd equals Avenge sevenfold. And they'll, they'll tell you that. Matt will certainly tell you. Matt was the first guest ever on the first episode of Speaking Destroy. And that was by design because, um, yeah, there. I mean, there's no Avenged Sevenfold sounds like Metallica plus Guns N' Roses. So this it's, tour it's and knowing certainly got the swagger of, of an Axl Rose. And, and the Illusion records are um, Matt's favorite albums of all time. Not Appetite, not a Metallica record. Guns N' Roses, Usually Illusion 1 and 2. The, the last time I asked him anyway, um, those were his, his guideposts. Which, it, when you listen to, especially something like the stage, um, you're like, oh, okay, yeah, these guys love the the Illusion records. They love Pink Floyd. They love, you know, the really proggy Avenged stuff. Um, but yeah, if you listen to Hail to the King and you don't hear Metallica in there, you're crazy. <laughs> well, <laughs> yeah, I mean, nightmare. in that whole album where they did like homages to ACDC, Metallica, 
guns, even a little Megadeth, you know. Uh, yeah, they, they, they have been, they have been as unapologetic and unashamed about their influences as Metallica has about Diamond Head and Motorhead and, you know. Quick, quick little uh, anecdote about Avenged and Hail to the King for the very small segment of your audience that's like Andrew and I that also love uh, NFL football and particularly the Raiders. Uh, the last time Sebastian Janikowski kicked for the Raiders was a preseason game. He did a warm up, and I was there on the field in Oakland. And the last kicks that he kicked through the crossbars were to Hail to the King playing in the uh, Avenged playing in the stadium. And videotaped that and sent it to Johnny Christ, who's a huge Raider fan, who nice. then uh, put that on the Avenged uh, uh, Instagram. Nice. So anyway, Johnny Christ also been on the podcast. Um, yeah, and I love Avenged, and they were a band. It's funny because they're a band that I still think of as a newer band, despite the fact that they're multi-platinum. They have you know several records at this point, and uh, you know I've been hosting a lot of stuff. Uh, for Knotfest, ever since you know the pandemic, they turned Knotfest into this like media brand, uh, and uh, you know the Twitch shows and YouTube shows, and I'm usually joined by a co-host who is in her mid twenties, and you know guests that are in their twenties, and when I catch myself saying things like Avenged Sevenfold is a young band or a new newish band, I, they literally laugh at me. <laughs> <laughs> I guess it would be akin to like if it were the '80s, and someone was saying like you know Led Zeppelin is a is a new band or something. I don't know. It it, it it's just funny, you know, kind of bringing us full circle of like the perspective there, right? Where you know to 25, 26 year old rock fans right now avenged our elder statesmen who so, influenced all their. So favorites. who age wise, Guns N' Roses are younger than Metallica? Is that right? Yes. Not by a lot, probably, but within five years, I would say. Yeah, they're, they're, they're a few years younger. Um, their first, yeah. the first Guns album was, what, 87? And the first album was 83? Yeah. So, it, it, you know, I guess Metallica were the elder statesmen, but I would say that Guns had been bigger for longer uh, than Metallica yes. at the time. That, 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 I think that's fair to say, because Guns came right out of the gate. Yeah, Guns was volcanic in terms of how they succeeded. Um, yeah. And I guess, um, so, so I guess um, one thing we haven't heard from yet on this is, Ryan, what were your memories of the actual show on the day? Because uh, yours was at the Hoosier Dome. And, you know, you know, do you remember who'd you go with? Where'd you sit? What do you remember about the, like, what, what were your overall impressions about both each, each of the headline band sets? You know, Guns N' Roses in Indiana is always special. Uh, you know, Axel and Izzy being from Indiana. The Welcome to the Jungle video you know, depicting Axl Rose with the hayseed in his mouth, getting off the Greyhound bus from Indiana and, you know, look around Hollywood. And as somebody who grew up in Indiana and, and moved to Southern California 20 years ago, you know, obviously I have uh, an affinity and a sentimentality about that whole, that whole tie. A uh, buddy of mine from Indiana, as if I don't have enough to do, him and I, and we hardly ever update it, but uh, we host a podcast together called Hoosier Illusion. Uh, <laughs> Amazing. Which was it was just such a great name that we had to make something of it, so we did a podcast. Um, but yeah, so the Hoosier Dome and, and and all of that. And and here's another here's another Indiana fun fact is that at that show, I pulled up the set list because of course I I admittedly do not remember 
<laughs> the set list that well. Um, one of the encores was Don't Cry, featuring, as it did on the album and in the video, the late, great Shannon Hoon of Blind yes. Melon, who was another Lafayette, Indiana, uh, you know, expatriate um, and, you know, gone too soon. But, uh, but yeah, Shannon, Shannon's on in the rooftop scenes in the Don't Cry video. Uh, you know, I think he's wearing like a flan- like an Axl Rose or an M Shadow style flannel. And uh, but if you see him doing the backups, and he, he's on the record too. But he came out um, in indie. Uh, but yeah, and and did, again, did Axl manage Blind Melon? Uh, like their co-signer, basically. I think he was their co-signer, kind of the way he brought. You know, he he showed up with Ricky Rackman to Ricky Rackman's Headbangers Ball edition audition, which certainly helped Ricky Rackman get that job with MTV. Right. <laughs> uh, Axel's just there hanging out. He's just, he's your plus one. Uh, it was a very similar sort of thing. I, you know, I, this is deep nerd and, and really weird, but um, uh, the other side one dummy records is Joe Sib and another guy named Bill and um, Bill was the first time I ever met him. We somehow, he's like, you know, a punk rock guy and that's a punk rock warp tour label and whatever. And we somehow got to talking about Blind Melon and he he knew and was hanging out with Blind Melon in LA back when when they were first getting signed and he had all these like crazy stories about like running around with them and stuff like that. But um, yeah, they certainly had, you know, success in their own right and became a bit of a one hit wonder. But yeah, no, that was just somebody that he had an affinity for. I don't think he had any kind of real professional this was before the days of like the Fred Durst where it's like, I'm vice president in Interscope. Right. That's what I was wondering if Axel was trying to do that. Right. Should have. (laughs) Right. There's a guy named Christopher Thorne that I think that Bill Armstrong is who you're referring to from Sideway. Yeah. Bill Armstrong. Yeah. That whole crew and those people from that, that era of Hollywood uh, knew him. And I think Christopher's still working in the industry. Uh, Okay, cool. Yeah. Yeah. He had a, he had a bunch of stories. Um, about Shannon Hoon and about all those guys. Oh my God! So why was was Blind Melon post this tour that we were talking about? Was had he passed by? It? Yeah, Shannon Hoon had. Yeah, passed. yeah, because he because yeah because he he sings on he he does backups on the Illusion records. Um, and he's but he had passed away prior to this. No, no, no. He died in '95. No, this so I wonder why Blind Melon wasn't on the tour. By the way, by the way, if you Google Shannon Hoon like I just did, the second result that pops up is a picture of Shannon Hoon with Donald Trump. Ooh. I think you know what yeah. at this point Blind Melon might have their record might have been out at that point but No Rain didn't take off till the summer of 1993 so they were still yeah uh, Blind awesome. Melon was a band by this point because Shannon was coming out at all those 91 forum GNR shows and singing Don't Cry with Axel every night and yeah. being introduced as a member of the, as a member of, of Blind Melon a band that you guys have never heard of yet and so right. and they were and yeah that record came out i think in 92 and like you said i don't think that song blew up till the following right and, and let's get let's get real this tour this guns metallica tour was before it almost is the perfect segue between the metal years and the grunge years right yeah, yeah. Right on the cusp you told that, that blind oh, melon record was produced by uh the same guy that produced the first Pearl Jam record, um, Rick Parashar. So yeah, so that's another like, yeah, this was, you're right. This was totally like a transitional. And, and, and I remember Nirvana coming out and almost like a needle scratch on the vinyl, grunge killed metal dead, right? Because metal was bloated, hair metal, C-tier 
terrible major label overproduced crap right at this point obviously i well not obviously but for people who don't know me i was more into the the you know the metal side of metal not the not the pop songs with hairspray yeah same listen i love a good rat song or a motley Crue song uh just like the next guy right but the uh um i definitely was not into the uh the you know the the bloated part of the hair metal thing but uh metal because it was so unified it was one right so mm-hmm. you watch headbangers ball and you would see a cannibal corpse video and then you would see a bullet boys video right and they would be all you know meshed together and uh this nirvana record kind of kicked off and uh, you know uh, what was the band that was a precursor to Pearl Jam? The uh, uh, Mother Love Bone. Mother Love Bone, yeah. Green River. Yeah, Green River, yeah. yeah. So, yeah, I think, you know, looking back on this, though, and, you, you, and I think you're right to, to mention the fact that, you know, grunge was on its way up at this point. <clears throat> but the two co-headline bands on this tour were two of the bands that remained unaffected by it. Yes, uh, and two of the perhaps only bands. Yeah, right. And yeah. so, I mean, when when I'm looking back on on my memories of the day, um, it just for me it, it was this this entire tour can just be summed up in one word, which is just excess. Um, and I think it it, it, it was a word that came to mind for me when you said one word. Yeah, uh, and, yeah. and 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 more or less kind of holding it together. Um, you know, it's. And I remember, um, you know, our show was on a Sunday in Pittsburgh, and I remember I went with a big group of people. Um, there were a bunch of us that were um, that would hang out at the same bar. Uh, now, unfortunately, now gone thing called uh, Ryan's Pub in East Pittsburgh. And there were about, I'd say, there were probably between ten or twenty of us. And you know, um, we started at um, at my friend Mark's apartment at like. 10 in the morning that day um and it was just like people started turning up with all kinds of beer and um and it was just like hardcore partying for probably three or four hours and then i guess i'm guessing like the late arrivals got stuck doing the driving down to the stadium um and i know i was in the stadium by the time faith no more was finished because i remember like i heard them go on and i was like oh okay chug the rest of this beer and go run in uh-huh. And, then it, and then it was a big security shakedown to get in. So I think I got in during um, the real thing. Uh, okay. Midway through the set. And then um, a very sad thing happened with me, which is that I somehow had bought my ticket. I was broke that summer. So I got my ticket much later than everybody else did. And I was the only person that didn't have a floor seat. And everyone else, um, it, it turned out the, the security for getting stubbed onto the floor, the security for actually getting onto the floor was really, really, really tight. And by the Which time- was definitely not was, always the case back then. <laughs> right, and, and it was, um, and you could see people like that were, they actually, a couple of people jumped onto the floor and they got gang tackled and walked out. And I was like, okay, well, I don't wanna risk that. And I waited until I was in the last, you know, like I remember I ran into one of our people on the concourse in between um, Faith No More and Metallica. And I was like, hey, can you stub me down? And he basically said, no, I don't want to risk it. Mm. And so <laughs> I ended up watching the rest of the show alone. That was the uh, only cool move. That was yeah, the move. Yeah. You, you, you traded concert tickets, right? You had four people and you would get some people down on the floor and then you'd go back and like, how, did, how does like 
like that's so like analog, right? You know? and, what they did, and, and, and at hardcore were, shows were, when they stamped your hand, they were stamping hands, but they were also like taking a punch or a stamp on the ticket so that you couldn't go up and reuse it. Well, and, and, uh, and, and, and hard, hardcore and punk shows where there weren't tickets, they would stamp your hand, and when you got just a little bit sweaty in the show, you could go outside and and uh, get rub right. your sweaty stamp off onto your buddy's hand or wrist you know i think i think i think this must have been one of the first stadium shows i went to one of the first handful because i have a distinct memory now that you mention it was this was the time where i realized i could didn't have to sit in my seat the entire time that i was assigned to and i could just go sit in a better section where somebody wasn't there and wait and hope that someone didn't show up with the ticket stubs claiming the seats I was in. And uh, I remember playing that game, right? Yeah, and that's exactly what happened with me with Metallica. So by the time by the time Metallica came on, I was like, oh man, I'm on my own. Um, you know, I, I remember I was broke at the time, so I didn't have money for any more beer and I didn't want to wait in line for an hour anyway. But, you know, I'd, I'd gotten enough of a buzz on, you know, by the time Metallica came on. And so I was watching from kind of across from the main stage, uh, kind of so I could hear the delay speakers well. And then I remember, and it was a really hot day, but then I remember um, at some point during the Metallica set, it started to rain. Um, and so at that point, I didn't feel like watching be, being like soaked for the next seven hours. So I ran out, ran out into the concourse and ran upstairs to the balcony level so I could get under kind of the overhang in the roof and ended up watching the rest of Metallica from up there. So I, you know, I didn't get completely soaked. And then I realized, you know what, let me just, I'm just going to stay up here. So I was in the balcony for guns for the rest of the night. And it was, um, and they played, um, they played an absolutely fantastic show. Um, they were really on point. Axel had a great night. He was running back and forth um, to the point where um, I remember before Don't Cry, he was like, well, he knew that they had played so well that he was like, so if any of you people don't feel like you got your money's worth tonight. <laughs> you feel like this was not a good use of your dollars. Well, this song is for you. <laughs> that started "Don't Cry," but um, and it was. Uh, but I also remember by you know by like the time Slash had started the guitar solo for the Godfather, which was you know a good two thirds of the way through the set. Mm-hmm. By this point, you know, uh, you know, I hadn't drank enough water. I'd actually had like a bit of a headache by the time. So it was sort of like just fighting through that to really enjoy the show. And, and then the other, the other reason that, that I remember I was kind of in pain is that the follow the, the previous week. Um, and you know, this is a time in my life when I was spending a lot more time in bars. Um, the previous week I was at a different bar down the street from Ryan's and at closing time, I was outside on the street at like two in the morning, just waiting for a couple of friends to come out. And I looked at some guy and because I looked at him, he came up and just sucker punched me right in the face. And, um, Always a good time. Yeah, exactly. And so, and he got me pretty good. I mean, like, you know, like, um, you know, bleeding from the mouth, you know, not, you know, nothing too bad, but I mean, I definitely like my head hurt for several days and, and, you know, so on and so forth. But this was a guy who was, um, it was not the first time he'd been in a similar situation like that, where he would just drink a lot and just lose his temper. And I remember I went out in the hall during the gun set to like either like hit the, hit, the, hit the restroom or whatever. And I ran into another guy from the neighborhood that actually had heard about what had happened. And this was like a big tough dude. And he pulled me aside and he goes, hey man, um, I heard about what happened to you outside Murphy's last week. Um, I'll tell you what, 
Um, I'm not a fan of this guy. And if you want me to, uh, and he kind of like makes a fist motion on your behalf, just let me know. It's like, whoa. And, you know, and this, it, it felt so fitting in the middle of this just like tough, violent set from Guns N' Roses where I'm like, my head is hurting and it's, it's just throbbing from like too much beer and not enough water and getting like jumped outside a bar the week before. I mean, it just summed up 19, the summer of 1992 in so many ways. And, yeah. I, rem- and I remember saying, you know, I was, and, and I told him no right away. I was like, listen, you know, um, he actually, you know, he searched me out a couple of days later and like apologized and was very, very sorry about it. We actually ended up being fine after that because I oh, didn't know who he was before then. But I remember just the whole day was just that of like excess. But it was also a weird time where, you know, I loved both of the band's shows and everything, but it felt, you know, seeing Metallica in a big stadium felt a little more impersonal. And, and, and the fact that I'd gotten split up within the 15 people that I was with made it a little more impersonal. And then Guns, who at this point were just on the rocket ride up, um, but were also just like, you could like the aggression and the anger and just the absolute runaway train. And it didn't care who they hit and who they run over or whatever. That was also there. And it just, for me, like the day, it, it tied together with the themes of the day, just, you know, very, very well. And I think it was it all kind of came together very well because you had Metallica who had all of a sudden made the decision to do something a little more accessible, not because they wanted to sell more records, but because it was a natural progression for them because they were always great riff writers. They always had, as Jeff Wagner put it in his book, Mean Deviation, Metallica also had always had so much confidence in their songwriting that they could jump, they, they could do whatever they wanted. And when the, they finally got the, the idea, maybe we can do four minute songs and something that's a little more accessible, maybe a little slower, boy, did they do it. And they succeeded and they rocketed themselves from arenas to stadiums and they happened to cross paths with, with guns who were one of the most, you know, again, just volcanic is the word that I described, you know, used to describe them because they had the right band, bland, you know, blend of, of talent and songwriting and performance from the time that those five guys got together and it worked and they arrived fully formed without yes. Yeah, and then from I was going to say, it's it, like they put out the, their Black Album first. <laughs> right. And then from there, they expanded out into every other direction. And because they had so much power at that point, um, you know, nobody at Geffen wanted to put out two 75-minute CDs. Yeah, that's, but they were that's so such a great point. That yeah. they did it. And so they were, guns, guns had just expanded to the point where they're like, okay, Led Zeppelin did physical graffiti. We can do two of them, you know, um, you know, and, and yet it somehow all still worked and they were able to maintain the anger and the fury from appetite, but yet expanded out to this kind of the grandiose levels that you would get with November rain and so on and so forth. And it all, and, and, you know, combine that with, with the, what time is Axel going to go on? Um, and so it was just this, which to Eric's point was definitely part of the show. In fact, in fact, going to see them with Metallica, knowing you were going to get a Metallica show regardless, made the risk of of some kind of train wreck happening with GNR that much uh, less even because that that was I mean you know there was a period as as a big fan as Lars Ulrich is as well of Oasis. Part of the appeal, in addition to the songs, 
were the personalities and knowing that, um, hey, I might go to Oasis tonight and Noel might be singing everything because Liam didn't show up, you know, or, uh, <laughs> yes. you know, seeing them play at one of the MTV VMAs and Liam, you know, puts his arms out and it's like Jesus Christ pose and, and uh, spits on the stage because uh, he's mad about something. And, you know, some of those characters, like, you got to have the songs, you know, that's got to get in there in the first place. I think, you know, the bands that are just antics without songs don't interest me. But that those that element of danger and that unpredictability of like, this is a keg of, you know, this is an Acme Dynamite kit that might blow up on these guys right in front of me. Or it might be, you know, the most amazing show I've ever seen. Either way, I'm going to be glad I was here to see it. It makes it more of an event. It makes it feel like something is happening that's live, that's real in real yeah. time, that you your friends are going to want to talk. It's water cooler stuff, right? Mm -hmm. It makes it, a, you know, what happened? Did he show up? What time did he go on? What was it like? I, I remember uh, very vividly where, again, you, Andrew pointed out that, that Guns did their Black album first, and I've emphasized many times on today, how much I liked the, the, the stretching out and the progginess of, I like Axel's voice, but I like it, but you know, the simple bluesy rock songs are less appealing to me for Guns N' Roses than, you know, I'd rather see, listen to Estrange and watch uh, Slash slide out of the rainbow with dolphins, right? But the- uh, um, Animatronic like, dolphins. <laughs> the weird, weird, weird Guns N' Roses is, is what I dig, right? By the time I watched November Rain, which they didn't play as strange uh, at Rich Stadium, but when they played uh, November Rain, I, that's kind of, I think, the moment where I stopped being somewhat of a hater. And really, I mean, I liked Guns N' Roses, but I was much more there for Metallica and secondarily Faith No More. But then when I saw him with the piano looking like Elton John meets Liberace, I told you earlier, they did that little quip of, uh, it's all right from Black Sabbath at the beginning, going into November rain, and I was just like, "This is this is Elton John, man. This is like," and and that's where I think that's where Axel won me over. Yeah, I think it was. Yeah. Um, this was my first. This was the, the first time I saw Guns N' Roses, and I and for me, they lived up to what to what I was hoping to see, and I think. I knew that they had been, a, you know, a, a strong live band for years. But the thing that really, really made me want to, like, I need to really step up my game and, and, and make an effort to see them because I kept on missing them over and over again, um, was circling back to those 1991 forum shows that, that I mentioned at the beginning. The reason why I found out about those shows because um, Rip Magazine, uh, which was amazing, I think we all just had stacks of them sitting around. Um, after they did that four hour show, Lon Friend, who was the editor in chief at the time, <laughs> did a two page spread on the last night of the guns of those four of the four nights. It was the four hour show. And he talked about, said the first night, um, they had me go out and introduce the band in my underwear and Slash's top hat and Slash's boots. And I thought that was gonna be the highlight of the run for me. And it wasn't. Three days later, and he, and he basically went on to talk about um, that the band decided that afternoon or Axel decided that afternoon, we're going to play all night. Uh, the band decided the band went and crashed the pre-show party and told everybody they were going to play all night. And then they went out and played every single song that they had, that they knew well enough to play with the new lineup. And um, 
it was, and he just said, you know, this was the Rolling Stones in Hyde Park. This was Led Zeppelin at the Forum. This was one of the greatest shows I've ever seen. And regardless of whatever happens after this, um, I know that I saw one of the greatest shows of all time and I watched my friends just destroy it. And the next day, Axel said, we would have kept on playing except we didn't know any more songs. And uh, so it was, I knew at that point when I read what Lon had written at that point, I knew, okay, these guys are really up at the highest level. They've hit, they've reached the pantheon of the Aerosmiths, the Led Zeppelins, you know, that, that biggest, that, that biggest, uh, you know, the, the apex of the pyramid. So I, by the time that this tour actually came around, I was so, so ready for them to come out and actually do something that at least came within shouting distance of that show. And they did, um, you know, by this time, guilt, you know, acts as he had left, um, you know, he, he was out of the band, you know, um, like a month or two after that forum show and Gilby Clark was in and did a great job. And, you know, this is when they, I think they had the horn section and they'd expanded it out, but nonetheless, you got a good solid taste of what guns was able to do on a really good night back then. And, and fortunately we got one because it was a roll of the dice at that point with GNR. It was a lottery ticket as much as it was a concert ticket. <laughs> and, well, and so, and, and fortunately, I think, and you're right, there was the mitigation of knowing that Metallica was going to come out and destroy for two hours and 15 minutes before that. And so it all worked so, out. One well, of the things I'd be remiss if I don't jam in here, and I don't think you guys know this, but I did put in the group chat that we had on text uh, some some passes, some uh, photo, a photo I took from side stage and yes. some uh, working passes and stuff. I got a job. I graduated Syracuse University in 1992, and I got a job that first summer after college working for a concert promoter in upstate New York, and we promoted a Metallica show, the final tour, uh, well, I think it's the either the last or the second to last date of the Wherever I May Roam tour uh, that was in Weedsport, New York at Cayuga County Fairgrounds, and I was the promoter rep. So I literally spent time with Metallica. I did the promotions. I did the, the oh, radio man. station stuff. I did the tickets. I did the posters. I literally was backstage. I met all the guys. Uh, you know, I showed you that little Polaroid. I have a bunch of Polaroids that aren't that great of shots from like behind the drum kit of me standing on the side of the stage. That was three weeks before the that they ended that tour and then they went on this tour. So. Wow. I have all the memorabilia, the ticket stubs, the photos, the passes, and I have specific memories, some of which were better said uh, in private, of mm -hmm. interacting with the members of Metallica, uh, you know, just a few weeks before this tour, right? And it's pretty cool right. to, to think about that. Cayuga County Fairgrounds, the 4th of July, 1992. Uh, oh. I think the support act was, was it? Metal Church? Is that right? Is that possible? I, I'm having a hard time remembering. But wait, um, you know, wait. If this was still black, were they? They weren't just showing the video. Maybe, maybe it was an evening with. That's right. Maybe that's what it was. But I don't know. I mean, if they were playing fairgrounds, they might not have brought the arena set up. So, I'll find out. Okay. I'll Google it in the background. But and, 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 uh, and Metal Church doesn't sound wrong to me. Um, yeah, and by the way, the. Uh, you know, Rip Magazine, Metallica, Guns N' Roses. We would also be remiss if we didn't talk about uh, 1990, the Rip Magazine fourth annual party 
at the Palladium. Ah, yes. Where, no, where, where none of us lived, but uh, to let people listening know, uh, this does all exist on YouTube, and I'm, I'm sure I'll post links to it and everything. But uh, on the Palladium, we had Axel Rose, Slash, and Duff McKagan. Incidentally, the the classic lineup members who are in the band now, uh, joined by Kirk Hammett, James Hetfield, Lars Ulrich, and a guy named Sebastian Bach. <laughs> and uh, they were a little super group at the Rip Magazine party. They did Hair of the Dog uh, from, from Nazareth. Uh, GNR's You're Crazy. Uh, from the Bell Tolls, Whiplash, and uh, some, some Skid Row song. We need we need video of that. I, it's, I, it's on it's out there. It's out there. It's, 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 a, it's yeah. a wonderfully shambolic, but the bottom line is uh, uh, the long friend could actually like throw have a magazine put on a show at the Palladium and have those guys turn up and yeah. do like essentially like uh, uh, like jam hour on stage in front of a paying audience. That means you had juice, man. That is cool. Yeah. Um, Metal Church was the opening act on July 4th, 1992. Think, man. Metallica at the height of their, they're still taking out Metal Church, right? That's kind right. of, Metal Church was not a big band, although they were label mates. To yeah. what extent, does anyone know, to what extent was Metal Church jammed on them by the label? And to what extent were they uh, just... Well, I think they, well, because John Marshall, who became the guitar tech, was right. in Metal Church yeah. at one point? I, I think there was some connection there, yeah. Um, yeah, I think that I think they would have been. I I, I think it, by this point, Metallica. I don't think you could tell Metallica who to take out at this point. <laughs> but but uh, I will say this, and maybe you guys aren't there with me. But side one of the first Metal Church record are four straight just bangers. Okay, just, just rips. Yeah. Like it's one of the most underrated metal sides of all time i think it loses something in the second side but i want to i want to say it was a monsters of rock show at castle donnington i'm not sure of the year but there are a great series of photos of dave mustaine and slash together and mustaine's drinking out of a, a jack daniels bottle but but there's a, a great set of photos where it's slash axel lars and mustaine Lars is wearing a Misfits Horror Business shirt and Mustaine is putting Slash's top hat on Lars's head. Um, <laughs> and it's just such a, and I'm about to do a, a bizarre name drop and I'm only doing this name drop because it's bizarre. But um, I tweeted that photo a few years ago and my old pal Pete Wentz of the band Fallout Boy uh, <laughs> retweeted it a few days later and said, Downey, I have not been able to get this photo out of my head for the last three days. Because <laughs> it, it is just a crazy moment in time, especially because this is like uh, it had to have been like '88 because it was uh, it was Jeff Young era Megadeth, and Jeff Young was in Megadeth for such a short time. Uh, so this would have been you know way before the Metallica Guns and Roses tour. Uh, but yeah, it's just it's a really cool, really bizarre series of backstage photos with and Jeff Young's in some of them. But uh, I like to crop him out when I post the photo. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, Axel, Axel Slash and uh, and Mustaine and Lars uh, goofing around. Um, I wanted to say something going all the way back, you know, to the earlier point when we were talking about the number of uh, cover songs that show up in a GNR set. And Eric, you mentioning that deep cut 
Sabbath song. And of course, my memories of this is very spotty, but I'm looking at the set list from the Hoosier Dome on the Metallica Guns N' Roses tour. And two things strike me about it. Number one, the set list is very similar to a set list you would see them play now. <laughs> Add in those, you know, two or three Chinese Absolutely. democracy songs and maybe the Velvet song. And otherwise, it's... There's not any albums after that. You're right. You're right. <laughs> you're right. So, yeah, Ryan, you're dead on. I mean, this is... Um... The, the not in this lifetime set is modeled very heavily on the usual on the illusions. Yeah. Even, even down to the Godfather theme. Right. Um, so yeah. So I'm looking at this and speaking of the cover songs, right? So, so guns, gun, the gun set goes night train into Mr. Brownstone and it's so easy. And then the fourth song in the set is a cover live and let die, you know, Paul McCartney and wings. The fifth song in the set is a cover attitude misfits. And then, yeah. uh, wild horses and they have, yeah you get yeah you get you get a few songs story. later and they they started patience with the intro to wild horses from the stones and then you know slash's solo goes into the theme from the godfather like andrew mentioned in indie they started um sweet child of mine with uh sail away sweet sister from queen um and I don't know what song this is. Maybe one of you guys know, but some call, some song called The One. Like they went fr from that Queen song into some other song called The One. No idea. Child. Oh, and then uh, Knocking on Heaven's Door started with a little bit of uh, Alice Cooper. Only one. Yeah, that was that was a set piece for them. Yeah. And then, uh, yeah, and then uh, Paradise City, which they closed with... Um, started with uh, a bit of Pink Floyd, um, Mother. Wish You Were Here, right? Uh, mother. Oh, uh, right. Yeah, and, and, and I think they did, they were doing part of Wish You Were Here when I saw them at Coachella on, on the, on Not On This Lifetime. But yeah, it's just, it's, it's I mean, it, it, you know, that's probably something that maybe isn't as obvious until you have a, a two and a half hour conversation about the two bands, but both bands love wearing their influences on their sleeves and love playing cover songs. Well, as long as your originals are good enough that the covers aren't holding you up, you can yes. do it. So, yeah, uh, no offense, yeah, Alien Ant Farm, you know, no offense, some other bands. <laughs> but, yeah, if you, but if you've got the material that's gonna, yeah, totally. And what's, you know, what's the cover song by Metallica that everybody, let's think about this. What's, what's probably the most, the number one cover song that Metallica plays? I don't think it's Last Caress, or I think it's. I think it's Am I Evil? Yeah, and yeah. people think that's a Metallica. One hundred percent. And you know, it's one of the first ones I had. And by the way, I got a weird uh, like I got into Metallica on the Ride the Lightning album cycle, and I had a weird little like sixteen times taped over cassette or whatever, and I got the vinyl. But I also got a cassette which I still have, which has it's the Creeping Death single. Yeah. Right? And Am I Evil is on the other side of that. Right. And that was Blitzkrieg was the other one. Oh, yes. Yeah. And when they like, and when Electra reissued Kill Em All from Megaforce, when they licensed it or whatever, after they were on Electra, they added Am I Evil and Blitzkrieg as bonus tracks. So but the, the cover first, art of Kill Em All I ever owned had those on there. The, the cover art on that single is awesome. So rad. Yes, it is. I love those singles those uh kill them all era singles and the ride the lightning era singles that have like the state fair 
like cover art. <laughs> yeah, totally. totally. Well, and, and well, circling back to the guns covers, I think, um, you know, um, one of the reasons that the attitude would get in, I mean, there were actually several reasons, but a, it was a way, it was a way to showcase Duff that, you know, as a lead vocalist, um, it also gave, um, you know, did the same things that the drum solo and the guitar solo do later on, which is give Axel a chance to rest his voice because, mm -hmm. um, you know, it's a two and a half hour set. And so it's, and, and, you know, I mean, Duff's an old punk. I mean, you know, he grew up. You know, oh, yeah. and, and so, you know, I don't think anyone had to. It's also the one who sings uh, the dead boys and, um, that, and that's another thing we haven't even discussed about guns and roses that I love about the illusion era. Um, I love Dustin bones, which is, is he on? Oh, yes. Um, uh, she's so fine, uh, pretty tied up. I think locomotive. There's a bunch of songs on the illusion records that are Izzy or Duff singing lead. Yeah, um, totally. And one of those times during the Chinese democracy era, when Izzy, remember when Izzy would turn up for, for shows here and there and just come do a few songs. I used to love finding YouTube videos of that because he would show up with the Chinese democracy band but they would play some of those Izzy lead vocal songs from the Illusion Records that you don't hear anymore. Yeah, it was like 14 years oh, of Dust and Bones. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And I guess, and, and they, what always, what surprised me is, is why, you know, they could have put My World in into this set as opposed to Attitude, but I guess, you know, because that's, that's a Duff lead vocal, but. Um, what, what, what was the first? What that's was the first? No, that's Axel, isn't it? Oh, is it? Sorry, no, wait, what am I confusing it with? What's the little, what's the punk song that, uh, what does Duff sing on? Uh, he sings on. Um, I'm drawing a blank. Oh well, okay. But yeah, yeah. No, my world is my world was the controversial song that uh, Axel recorded without anyone else in the band knowing. Oh, okay. As the story goes, the rest of the guys heard it when the record came out, and they were like, "What the fuck is this?" <laughs> like the Nine Inch Nails kind of want to be. Okay. I'm, I'm, I'm what sure. was the first uh, gun song you heard off the Use Your Illusion albums? Uh, you could be mine because of yeah. the Terminator, which That's right. yeah. I always point to this. Uh, because okay, so you know, managing the band Demon Hunter, we did a Use Your Illusion on their last record, where we put out two records on the same day. One's called War. One's called Peace. Uh, the band Periphery did Alpha and Omega a few years before that. There's not many. Um, and then there's some five finger like, death punch. The some bands like, there's some bands like five finger death punch, who I was just about to say, but five finger didn't do same day release. They and and double right. driver, there, there's a couple other bands that have done it, but they've done it spaced apart. Um, but we did the illusion and periphery did the illusion, uh, style two records same day. And something that I learned as being a Guns N' Roses fan for all these years and doing my uh, my industry newsletter is for whatever reason, load, reload, the five finger part one, part two. Uh, with the exception of the Illusion Records, for some reason, the second record, the part two, even if it comes out on the same day as part one, sells a little less than part one. And I think it's because there's a mental and you said it earlier about reload, there's a mental thing where you think whatever's part two, even if they came out on the same day, is the afterthought. These are the not as good songs. These are the... All right, the, least, you know, least the, discussed the Metallica, right? But one thing I like that, that other people don't like, I told you I'm a Death Magnetic fan. Yeah. I like 
unmagnetic. And anybody ever hang with Ah, them? which is the yeah. ultimate, yeah, the 30th anniversary shows. Yeah. Um, but those are clearly, those are clearly B-sides, but yeah. there's some pretty good stuff on there. Right. Well, uh, yeah, I like that Rebel of Babylon song. Um, but, but what's interesting about Guns is that Illusion 2 is the one that has the slight advantage in terms of sales over Illusion 1. And I credit Arnold Schwarzenegger and James Cameron with that because, and I think Guns N' Roses, whoever made that decision to come out with a song from Illusion 2 as the single, the first single from both records, that that's what I think gave two the edge over one. Like, what, what was the biggest hit single off these two records? Well, let me say this too before we get into that. Both records, this is also genius, both records have Don't Cry. Yeah. So if you're going to the store and you're like, I heard that Guns N' Roses song, Don't Cry on the radio, I want to buy the one with that on it. You could buy either one. <laughs> Yeah, I, th I think two ended up um, had had the the tactical advantage because Civil War had also been released as a song. It was for a, a charity compilation, and then right. I believe I, I forget exactly where the um, the you could be mine like turning up in Terminator 2 exactly where it came from, but I do know that James Cameron had the, invited the band up to his mansion to discuss it, um, and that was and Arnold's in the video. This was back yeah, in the days, and, and that was also part like, of the deal. It was here's movie clips, and here's the band. It was like there was a big meeting of the minds, and then uh, yeah. on top of that, uh, and and so and, and on top of that, you could be mine was a holdover that was almost on appetite. So November Rain was almost on appetite, but there would have been yeah. too many pounds. So that had been a holdover, and so they they knew that they had. Don't cry was a holdover. Sorry, right. yeah, and. Um, so and then and then guns of course did their extra unexpected part to help out uh, help out the movie because um, the movie opened on July fourth of, um, of of nineteen ninety one or actually it was July the special premiere was July third and actually it was July third it was and and then the day before was the infamous Guns and Roses riot concert in St Louis yeah. when they actually had to like run off they got you know run off the stage and they had to escape to Illinois to uh, you know. Uh, like and hide in the on the floor of their buses. Wasn't or that Axel in like the fur coat yeah. and the biker shorts? Yeah, and, and so by the time in the ring, motherfucker, right? in the middle of the opening, like the, the opening weekend, gets all of this extra publicity because the song, uh, the featured song in the film, is performed by a band who just caused a riot in St. Louis yeah. and had to flee state lines, and so it just you know it it all. Um, well, I know I know we got to land the plane here pretty soon, <laughs> but but I want I want to throw this at you guys as part of my Guns and Roses Delosh gears, and it ties right into uh, Illusion and uh, Arnold. I believe of all the false starts of all the times where Axel almost put out Chinese Democracy and almost came back, I think that he tried to replicate the. Uh, the uh, Terminator 2 moment because he put a song, a Chinese democracy era song years before Chinese democracy came out called Oh My God on the soundtrack to the Arnold Schwarzenegger vehicle End of Days. The problem was that movie, unlike Terminator 2, flopped. And, and this is just my personal theory. I think Axel retreated back into his, his shell and uh, disappeared again. But the interesting fact about that Oh My God song, which is not a good song, uh, it features, in addition to a multitude of, you know, various cast of characters that came, that were in and out of Guns N' Roses in those years, a guitar solo from Dave Navarro and a guitar solo from Brian May. 
random song on a random Arnold Schwarzenegger movie soundtrack. And, and yeah, and my, my personal theory based on no evidence is that Axel thought, okay, I'm going to, you know, we came back after Appetite with our big Arnold Schwarzenegger song. I'm going to do this again. This is how I'm going to come back now with Chinese Democracy. And uh, the movie flopped, and I think that scared him away for another. And then how many years later was it that Chinese Democracy actually came out? Uh, that's a good question. Um, I'm going to look that up right now because, let's see. End of Days was 1999, and I believe Chinese Democracy was 2008. Yeah. <laughs> so, hey, when you say retreated... <laughs> Yeah, do that. Yeah, almost ten years, almost ten more years, and um, no. and ninety nine was only a couple of years after I think Duff left. Duff being the last last man standing. Wow. And so, uh, yeah, and, so, and right so, around the time that uh, Zach Zach Wild was in, I think it was ninety seven when Zach Wild was in Guns N' Roses for two weeks, and that was one of the last draws for Slash because Slash said, "Why do we have another lead guitar player here?" Well, I'm I'm looking at the. I was asking you what the biggest song off these records. Oh yeah, are. yeah, yeah. Uh, is it is it November, November Rain? Rain? It's got to be on spot. Yeah. yeah, that was their biggest. That, that, that was that was that was the longest like top ten single ever in the history of the American Top Forty. And here's a here's a here's a fun and weird fact check, Eric. Um, we were we were all discussing which Metallica cover is their most played, and we all collectively decided it's got to be "Am I Evil." According to setlist.com, it's actually Last Caress. That's, that's, that's what I thought. Was the, okay. That was the other guess, no, right? It says Am I Evil was the, was the cover song that is most identified. Identified with them. Yeah, okay, you're right. So, they, But they've played, they played Last Caress 829 times and Am I Evil 781 times. Because it's short and it's easy. Yeah. But gosh, I can't believe that that's not cancelable material today, right? I mean, that those lyrics are not... Well, people were making fun of Danzig because he recently said that the Misfits couldn't happen today because they'd be canceled. And they were like, listen to this right winger talking about cancel culture. And it's like, yeah, 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 slow down though. Is he wrong? <laughs> I think he's right. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, I mean, I doubt too many uh, uh, lyrics like the uh, like that uh, lyric are going to appear on songs by major mainstream bands today. No way. Absolutely, no. of course not. No Absolutely. So, so, so if, 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 you, if if they were going to recreate, if Metallica and Guns went back out for a th anniversary, what if this summer we were looking at the 30th anniversary Metallica Guns? Um, a more recreation tour, right? Well, you actually, you actually took, you, you know what, like, um, wow. in terms of segueing into the closing, that was exactly where I was going to go. That hadn't even occurred that, to me. I don't know how, but that hadn't occurred um, to me. It just, that's exactly where I was going because we have 30th anniversary of all of this stuff. There's no, re I mean, you know, next summer is, is 2022, the 30th anniversary of this tour. Why not? You could even still get Faith No More to open up. Exactly. What do you guys think, man? And uh, I'm all for it. I'm in. Ever? Does Lars does Lars get the white leather jacket back out? I can't believe we talked about this whole era, this whole tour, and we didn't talk about Lars's white leather jacket, the infamous you know, Axel Rose jacket. I, I love I love Lars, man. People are uh, are such Lars bashers, but like that dude loves music like the three of us love music. This man. is like a, th this podcast is could you know it's a Metallica podcast. If it has a secondary designation, I would say it's a Lars Ulrich fan podcast because I am not only am I constantly advocating for Lars for numerous numerous reasons about his his role and his impact and and uh, stewardship 
of the band and the legacy. He writes the set list. I mean, there's a whole list of reasons. But to the credit of a lot of Metallica fans out here of stature, right? The people that I have who come on here who are creative people themselves and not just shit talkers. A lot of Lars fandom from drummers, you know, uh, Mark O'Connell from Taking Back Sunday, diverse drummers, you know, uh, Mark, Mike Portnoy, uh, the drummer from Wolves in the Throne Room, who I just had on, who's like, you know, one of the most cred American black metal you know, cover a decibel magazine. He fucking loves Lars. And he oh. thinks, and, and, and his drumming, not just his. I'll throw something. this out there. When I was a kid, and, and I'm talking, and I played in thrash metal bands and I was trying to do this stuff, Lars Ulrich was considered a good drummer, the double course. Yeah. Bills. And then Napster happened. And then all of a sudden, Lars Ulrich, oh, oh he's a terrible drummer. He's not in time. He's in a, all that stuff. That's hater fueled. And I don't hear it. I mean, maybe he doesn't play like a, a program machine or whatever, but that's part of the fun, right? Yeah, and, and also it is in an identifiable style that is fundamental to this band's sound. Because if you go on YouTube and you watch, uh, you know, the festival that Lars couldn't make uh, where Joey Jordanson played most of the set, Dave Lombardo played some of the set. I think Lars's drum tech might have. Um, it sounds great. Joey Jordanson's one of the best metal drummers to ever do it, and he's a big Metallica fan and killed it. But it's not the same, and, and you know, and you can't cover "Sad but True." I say this on the podcast all the time. There are a lot of big metal songs, a lot of big rock songs. Like, you know, if you're going to cover "Thunderstruck," uh, right? Like, if you've got the tempo, you know, and the groove, it's going to sound like "Thunderstruck." You can't cover Sad But True without doing every one of those fills the exact way they are on the record. Exactly. The same song. By the way, the last time I was on Speak and Destroy, I teased at the end, Ryan, that I was working on a cover song. Uh, uh, it, it was uh, a Metallica cover for another band. It was Sad But True by the Mongolian band called The Who. And oh, yeah. Which is awesome. That is now on uh, Spotify. Uh, and I just had the pleasure of working with the Metallica camp for the Who to do another Metallica cover song of Through the Never, which will be on the Blacklisted Project. So nice. that's so sick. Most recent connection to the Metallica camp. That's so great. Yeah, when I had when I had Doc Coyle on recently for his uh, third Speaking of Story appearance, I was like, dude, I, I was I was praising the Metallica camp for how tightly guarded they, you know, how what a well kept secret the the blacklisted project was when it's like 53 bands like how did we not get a social media post from somebody's bass player that they're on this metallica project right like the fact that it wasn't like a big story on the interwebs and then i, I said to doc i was like dude i mean like how did i not know like how, how did we not know and doc was like well i knew about it <laughs> i was like you fucker <laughs> well doc does play with uh uh kirk hammett from he does and rob Trujillo. Yeah. yeah there you go but i think from, from lars's standpoint yeah I, I think also also a big fan i mean in the very early days metallica doesn't happen without his energy and, and nope. again like you had the perfect word his stewardship yeah. also keep in mind that with the original lineup that made it to the recordings the chemistry as players between um james kirk lars and cliff um that was magic 
And he was one of the four guys there. And regardless of whatever, even, you know, his, you know, his technical style is a little different from everyone else or whatever, but he's the only drummer that Metallica has ever needed. Yep. And, um, and when they, when they did those 30th anniversary shows where they, where they sent the fan club an MP3 of each of those uh, beyond magnetic songs every night afterwards, interesting fact that, that Portnoy pointed out on the podcast for whatever reason, right. There are so many guest vocalists, so many, you know, Danzig, Ozzy, so many guest vocalists, so many guest guitarists, so many guest bass players, so many, you know, all the ex-members, all the living ex-members of Metallica, even have, you even had Lloyd Grant there and Hugh Tanner, not one guest drummer. Four nights, different sets I mean, every night, a million guests, one drummer, every song, all four nights. Oh, what? God bless uh, uh, Lars Ulrich. One last thing I wanted to also put in here with the Blacklisted project. Yes. How much does that feel like the recorded version of the Orion Festival that they did years ago? Ah, yeah. <laughs> that curation. Yeah. On, as opposed it's like, here, to here, here's Avenged Sevenfold and here's Arctic Monkeys. Yeah. Right. Totally. I wonder if they'll uh, ever revive that or if that was just too you know uh that was a bridge too far in terms they, of they lost they lost too much money my understanding is they lost a ton of money on those and around the same time lost a ton of money on the 3d movie and then yeah. did like a, but of course they're metallica so they do like a summer's a summer's worth of european festivals and make all that money back yeah but uh, uh yeah apparently I'm, those were such labors of love the movie and the two festivals that um i'm liking the idea of gnr metallica next summer though 30th anniversary let's, let's no more and Body Count, who are also, you know, some of these bands yeah. that are on are back, you know, Body Count's back. Yeah, do it. I mean, guys, it's too obvious of an idea, right? So could it happen? Yeah, although famously, you know, Papa Head in particular, they said they would never do it again. But of course, not in this lifetime. Never say never. Hell freezes over. Well, I mean, they, they yeah. can, I mean, it can be like the Eagles where each band, you know, whoever wants to can show up and leave in their own limousine or whatever, you know, I mean, you don't, you don't have to interact. Well, an actual shows up on time. like the big four, one off, one in Europe, one in Indio, California, one at Yankee Stadium or something. That's it. That'd right. be awesome. That's a great idea. Well, let's cross our fingers. And now's a great time to do it for a lot of reasons. And, you know, I think the big four happened at the perfect time because unlike just before, and unlike now, for those big four shows, you were able to have the original lineup of Slayer, even the Indio show, which I got to see. And right. Jeff Hanneman. Hanneman played at Indio. He came yeah. out. Yeah, he came out for two songs. Uh, you had Joey just back in Anthrax. And you had David Elveson had just recently rejoined Megadeth. So you can't, a year before, you couldn't have done that show. And you know now certainly you can you can't do that show. So uh, those big four shows happened at the exact right time. And I would say Metallica, Guns N' Roses, Faith No More, so, you know, 30th anniversary next summer would be a great time in terms of the lineups of those bands. I bet you they do it, and I bet you Faith No More is not on the bill. Mm. That's what I bet. But let's see what happens. It'll oh, be it'll be a great free, pleasure. Guys, I got to run, but I gotta say. You know, I expected uh, to sit down and talk for uh, 45 minutes with you guys. Here we are at hour three approaching. I didn't. I, I, yeah, I didn't because I know what it's like when any combination of just the two of two of two of any of the three of us are together. 
Yes. Don't want all three of us at the same time. So I just all in my mind was like, what am I doing on Saturday? Talking to Andrew and Eric. That's <laughs> well, all I thing, you know, The last thing I have to say is Andrew Carter got me original pressing uh, uh, Ride the Lightning vinyl for my 50th birthday last summer. So that's a real friend right there, right? You're welcome. Both to you. And then I mentioned him on a blog article I did for somebody about classic, expensive, heavy metal vinyl. So there you go. But, uh, and Ryan, thank you for hosting that uh, Einstein Kills event last week. It, like this, the, you, you two are some of my favorite people to talk music with. And I hope that, you know, God willing and lottery willing, we're all going to the 40th anniversary shows. Yeah. Uh, our tickets right so by hook or by crook we will all be there we'll figure it out all three i knew of both of you and you both knew of me for a long time before we got to know each other but getting to know each other in the last couple of years like it's just been such a treat because it's it's so you know it reminds you of being a teenager when you would meet somebody else where you just have that instant spark and chemistry and we can sit here and talk for three and a half hours you know it's amazing i can't wait i can't wait for uh to go to the 40th shows and then hopefully get to do this again with you both to review them. Absolutely. Absolutely.